Welcome to another episode of Fire's Fire. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Jameson Wellborn. As always, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, the talented Dr. Brian Paul, as well as RJ Ellis. And today we have got a super exciting show for you. Um, we're, we're really excited. I know all three of us have been following Rackham's for a really long time. Um, this guy has been more than generous with the amount of tech that he's given out. And, um, you know, without, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Nick, um, better known as Rackham's. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time, man. What's up, brother? How's How y'all doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah thanks for coming for us. We greatly appreciate it. I mean, yeah, no doubt. you know, the fact that you were watching our show made, made us feel like we were, uh, we were that much more legit and actually, uh, on the right track. And the fact that you were <laughs> on the show is like, oh shit, maybe we do know what we're doing a little bit. <laughs> well, it seems to be the case. I mean, you guys are having on some, uh, some top notch, you know, guests to say the we, least. So we appreciate the support. I mean, we appreciate you, man. With RJ wanting to have kind of just like a virtual set where you know, things we talked about in the industry and it's really kind of snowballed from there. And, and, um, you know, we've gotten a ton of love from the community and, and a ton of people reaching out, just kind of saying how, like, yeah, I've been, I really enjoy this format of show and, and, you know, we're all about highlighting makers and, and the stories behind them. So, um, kind of just on that, what, what we'd like to do at the start of shows is, you know, you've got so much going on currently, but kind of take us back and, and let, let the viewers know a little bit about, you know, where you're from and, and where it all started for you. Yeah, I mean, um, originally from San Jose, California, um, South Bay. I was born and raised there until I was about 13, 14 years old, and then moved to the East Bay um, agriculture area, like far East Bay. It wasn't actually considered the East Bay then, called Brentwood, Oakley area. Um, spent my high school years there, and then um, got to my mid-20s, bought a house out there, had a volatile relationship with an ex, and that split up and then I met my wife and moved out to the mountains about almost 10 years ago now, about nine years ago and so, never so looked back in that agricultural area. And like, did that have an impact on you? Were you, um, you know, were you drawn to agricultural practices or, or what were, what was taking up most of your free time, uh, you know, during your adolescence? I mean, in San Jose, I mean, we moved because the area that we lived in in San Jose was definitely rough. Um, it's known for its gang violence and whatnot, especially back then. Um, which I was starting to get in, involved in a lot. So my parents Wait, thought it was a good idea. About, like 80s, 90s? This is uh, early 90s, early to mid 90s. Uh, like I said, I moved from San Jose when I was about 13, 14 years old and was already getting into gang bullshit then. So parents thought it was a good idea to move me out to the sticks where we, it's called the Delta. So it's the a portion of the bay that's kind of splinters off. Sacramento River comes down and connects to it. It's a big big uh water area and uh i used to go we used to go out there just to go ride jet skis and and uh and hop on boats and things like that and then my parents were like we're moving to, to that area i was like what no like it's that's the sticks i'm from the city like this that nope i'm cool <laughs> and so i was a little rebellious initially but we moved out there and uh got involved in a little bit more gang stuff uh not not chosen by me, it just kind of followed me around. And I kind of, at that point I was like, see, I told you, you tried to move me away from San Jose to come to this place to get away from shit. And I got caught up in some shit. And now I just want to go back home. That's all I want to do is go back home. So I fought them, but then kind of once I got into my early twenties and whatnot, kind of realized that it was a lot better decision that they did on my part and my well-being 
because it ended up being a better situation all the way around. I met my, a lot of friends that I still, I'm still friends with and family with there more so than the people I knew in San Jose growing up as a child, you know, except for a few, there's only like one person that I've known since I was two years old and he was one years old. Other than that, I've met everybody else in my life in my that late teens, early twenties. Yeah. Absolutely. So what, what was, what were you passionate about during that time? Like, I know that you have a history of, in the automotive space. Did that start at that age? Was that what you taking up your, your free car? Were you obsessed with cars? You needed to get, you needed to work your way up to that, that BMW and that, uh, no, no, no Europeans. <laughs> I was, I, I definitely was a, a rat rod, a hot rod type of guy. I had a little rockabilly phase when I was younger. Um, my first car was a 52 Chevy Bel Air and my parents bought it for me for 200 bucks or something. And I was taking it apart and it was just sitting there, but I was taking it apart. And my mom thought that it was, uh, it was just collecting dust. So I got home from school one day and it was towed to the junkyard and it was gone and it crushed, crushed my heart, man. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I've been involved in automotive my whole entire life. The, aside from cannabis, I guess you could say my only real career and job that I, I ever did was automotive, whether it was selling parts at auto parts stores, managing auto parts stores, auto shops, or doing lifts, lowering uh, kits and things of that nature. Transmissions were a big one. Uh, my dad got me put onto automotive at a young age. He was rebuilding engines. Uh, every, every month he had a different engine, it seemed like. Is that what he so, did for work? Is that what kind of influenced you? No, he's actually a, a maintenance mechanic for biotech companies. Um, that's been the majority. So it, it, to be more specific, HVAC technician. So heating, air conditioning, ventilation, all that stuff. That's been his background for forever. Um, working for Lockheed Martin and, and other bio, big biotech companies in the Bay Area. Um, but he was also a drafter for a while as well, which got me into drafting and which turned that into art. Um, I was pretty big into art when I was younger, but I lost interest in it when all my teachers tried to tell me what to draw instead of allowing me to express myself the way I wanted to. So, I mean, I've been an artist for my whole entire life, drawing as soon as I could hold a pencil. Um, the automotive and the art kind of conglomerated into graffiti and also the rat rods and things of that nature. Lowriders were our big one. I mean, I got a lowrider tattoo right here, Mag lowrider magazine. So kind of grew up in that Chicano environment um, coming from San Jose and then moving to the East Bay. But yeah, that got me into music, um, from there. So let's talk about that. I mean, you're, you're, music is a huge part of your life. Um, you're, mm -hmm. you're largely involved in a very specific sect of music. How did that come about? You know, was, was it always drum and bass for you or, or did you move through a few genres and eventually find your home? I mean, I'd like to say it was always drum and bass from the very point, but that's not where I got, I got my foundation in uh, freestyle music, you know, eighties classic B-boy freestyle music in San Jose. I was DJing breakdancing little competitions at our local church when I was, um, shit, 15, 14 years old and didn't really find my place in DJing until I moved to the East Bay and met, met some of my friends that I can truly call my brothers now. Um, they were all older than me. So back in ninth grade, these guys would have been, uh, juniors or seniors, but, uh, I was one of the first ones to bring decks around and do, and do dances, you know, my parties out at our, at our quad or 
for the high school dances and things of that nature and got a couple of my boys on on the same level. Then we kind of started our own crew. We were doing, I was doing house music, uh, freestyle music, a lot of, uh, I don't really like to make this public, but I used to DJ uh, like hard trance for a while, which, is, uh, which I'm not proud of, but whatever. <laughs> and then uh, my boy RJ kind of put me on to uh, drum and bass. He was a drum and bass head before I knew it, what, what it was. And that was uh, 98, 99. Was there, like, was there like a moment, like a song? Oh, yeah, there was. Yeah, I just actually had this conversation with uh, somebody online on Facebook. They asked, when was, when was what was the, the piece of music that put you on to drum and bass? And I still remember to his day, I heard this tune called Kill a Bees by Usual Suspects. And we, me and my boy RJ were walking into a walking into a German bass room at a, at a rave and that song was on and it just like blew my mind. I was like, what the fuck is this? And I wanted to know more. So I just started, started I left everything behind after that and just pursued German bass as far as production, uh, DJing it, hosting parties, doing a lot of promotion in San Francisco. Uh, did you, did you have anybody that like influenced you or like mentored you or like brought you up like that? Or did, was it all like self-found? It was a journey to go through. Yeah, I mean, you got to remember, like, <clears throat> I was, I wasn't even 21 yet. And so, yeah, 99, 98, that's 22, 23 years ago. Damn. Um, I wasn't even 21 yet, but I was on this forum called Ground Score. Uh, and there was just a, nothing but German bass. It was the only German bass forum in, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I would find these club nights and just go out there. And even though I, all the clubs were 21 and up, I would just hang out the front on, at, on, on the street with Sharpie CDs with my mixes and give them out to people. And slowly but surely, I'd start meeting the big wigs of our, of our scene in San Francisco. The real uh, hustle. They, they started to recognize me. I started to recognize them more and just kind of slowly became, a, I slowly became a little bit more of a prominent uh, person in the scene out here at least. And got, to, got the chance to join a couple of crews that did some pretty big stuff out here back in the day. Um, but I mean, as far as influences, I mean, you name them when it comes to German bass, I have no, no specific one, except for currently DJ craze, who's, uh, from Miami and he's just another level. He's the goat, but he, he also does a lot more than German bass as well. So what was that like? Was that, you know, you're, you're, you're not even 21. Are you immediately going on tour? Where's the, what's the community like at that point? Like, is there a very healthy circuit that you can jump onto or was it? Oh yeah. I mean, I wasn't really doing too much touring. I was just, I, I would, I was doing a music school in uh, San Francisco at night. So I would go out there a couple nights a week. And then after the, after my classes, I'd go and find a, a weekly drum and bass club that's, that was going off, whether it was uh, eclectic or for churro or um, compression crew, which is still going on currently. Um, I would just, I would hang out those spots. And then there was this another, there was another night called Rhythm Method at a spot called Shadow Lounge. And luckily I got real close with that promoter and he allowed, he gave, used to give me and my ex-girlfriend wristbands on the back door and sneak us in just so we could hang out. And I didn't even care if I was drinking or not. I just wanted to be there. I wanted to be immersed with, uh, surrounded by all these people that I looked up to. So that was, uh, the scene was flourishing at that point, early 2000s, the mid 2000s. It was you could go to three to four different nights or drum and bass parties in one night and just hit up all these amazing shows. And if you had a wristband for one, you go to another one, they give you a discount for having a wristband for this one. 
it was so it was a way better community. Nowadays, it's it's slowly kind of split apart and sectored off and whatnot, which is as you know always to be expected. The junglists have some of the biggest egos, aside from from uh, cannabis heads. You know, <laughs> sounds sounds like something really familiar to. Our <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, and you met your wife in this in this scene as well. Is that true? Yeah, she's a German based DJ as well. Okay. Originally, originally it was um, breaks for her breakbeats. And then uh, she got into German bass. We knew of each other 15, 20 years ago. I mean, I, as soon as the first time I saw her, I still remember that day too, is at this, uh, this underground rave called the dungeon. And it was just a hallway full with, with uh, doors leading to different rooms. And I walked into one of them and she was there playing short little girl, long black hair. It's like, who is that? And one of my boys told me who she was. And that was kind of, I just always kind of kept my eye on her through the years. And, uh, and who she hung around with as far as people in the scene. Uh, but we never really talked and never really had any type of interaction ever. I just kind of always was creeping from back behind the scenes and whatnot, even when I had girlfriends, to be honest. Um, Yo, when you first described her there, like going into like that thing, I don't know if anybody else thought of it, but I thought of Wayne's World. Like <laughs> when he's seeing what's her name and it's just like the sparkle going, it's just like, oh, I mean, God. I, I'm not going to lie. <clears throat> I didn't have that uh, volatile relationship i was telling you guys about i was actually with in in that relationship when uh or breaking off with that when i met finally got to like link up with uh, mercedes and the funny thing about it is my ex actually called me out she's like you've been fucking eyeing her for years haven't you it's like mm, yeah <laughs> i'll be honest <laughs> so was it like it's the connection with you guys when you guys finally did like start talking or it wasn't so oh yeah i mean the they, it was instant obviously with right off the bat with the music did you guys ever ever collaborate and like produce anything together or was that i actually uh together <laughs> i actually have a couple of tunes that uh i never finished that i was working on with stuff that she made that she worked on with her um her ex-husband uh last time i touched those was probably three or four years ago they're definitely uh asian uh Southeast Asian influenced her, uh, her fam, her family spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia and, uh, she had nannies in Singapore and whatnot. So she's, she's really keen to that type of music. So there's had, I think it was either that, or it might've been, um, um, Indian, like not native American, but East Indian, uh, type of, uh, like it's hard to pinpoint the, the melodies and sounds that it was from, but they were good stuff. I got to finish those. Thanks for reminding me actually. <laughs> that's so it's so cool what you pick up as a kid and like how, how much those little things can have impressions and then you know something that would you know appear foreign to other people it's like no no no, i'm really comfortable with this like i understand these these sounds so i, I yeah I, that's super cool yeah with her yeah with her and me aside from that we uh we clicked with the music we clicked I, I mean i clicked a lot with her because she was totally different than the females that i was used to she was traveled she was experienced she was um I mean, she's older than me, which is uh, always seemed to be the case with with how much older came around. She's uh, three years older than me, I believe. I'm 37, going to be 38 this year, so two years. I don't want to say she's over 41 or if over 40 should kill me. But yeah, two she's years. 39. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, the, um, it was that. I mean, the cannabis came later, obviously, because I didn't know she grew when I met her. Yeah. I didn't know she was uh she she had a garden. She did her own thing like that. 
uh, that came after the fact. So it was, it was mainly just the music and the vibe that we got. My my itch to want to travel and see the world and experience life. Because prior to her, I was in the Bay my whole entire life. I think I left California twice to Oregon and then to New Mexico to see family from both sides of my parents. And that was it. I'll actually take that back. Miami once for Winter Music Conference, but never been out of the country, never been to any other crazy states or like anything outside of the West Coast except for Florida. And I met her. Next thing you know, I'm going to Croatia and going to Mexico and, and going to all these other places like, okay, this is what's up. This is why I dig you. I vibe with you, you know? That, that's a lot. What, what, was, uh, what was it like, your first experience outside of, I would say North America, because yeah, that would be Croatia, and that was for. Uh, but was mind blowing? I, I almost feel like oh that, my god, that, an extreme bonding moment because like. Well, that, yeah, that was our first uh, first experience to like try to see how we travel together. You know how like how we're gonna work traveling because that'll make or break a relationship if you've never done it before and just go on. Like we did a I think eleven hour flight starting out, went to uh, Switzerland and then went down to Switzerland to Croatia. And that was my first time out of the country with her. And it was a big uh, three-day festival. We stayed out there for about a week or so. Um, it's all drum and bass festivals. They had seven or eight stages that were all playing different styles of drum and bass and dubstep um, and grime music and so on and so forth. So it was, it was a trip, to say the least. And then doing acid for the first time in a different country. Also, behind the wheel was pretty interesting. <laughs> That was an experience and a half. Um, there was a lot of firsts in that trip alone. That's awesome. How long did you guys go for it? Was it like a week or two weeks? It was about a week. We uh, we went, uh, so it was a- That's a sink or a, swim, that's a sink or swim trip, eh? Yeah, there's a lot that can go wrong. And luckily we uh, we worked out pretty well. The, it was a festival called uh, Outlook. Um, they actually had their opening ceremonies in uh, Roman Coliseum. One of the only fully- are still fully built Roman Colosseums. So just getting to go out of the country and then first thing first, we go to this Roman Colosseum where I'm touching the walls of like, you know, I guess thousand year old uh, rock that people have, you know, shed their blood on. And like standing on this ground was, was definitely interesting. And then after that, we went to the fort where they had the rest of the, the show, the event. And it was a 400 year old fort in Croatia. So that was spectacular as well. Um, it's definitely something that I'm planning to go and do again sooner than later. I've heard parties like that in other countries. Like I had a friend that lived in Israel and he used to go to parties like that. And it would be like three days, everybody bring a tent. And it was just like, you were in like this valley or something. And it was just like, yeah, intense, like music and partying and like the best time ever. And like, yeah, yeah. they don't do, they don't do festivals out here like they do in Croatia or not Croatia, but just in Europe in general in the UK. It's, totally different totally different ball game like the headliners that we think of in the states are opening out there like their 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 whole entire uh, roster is just headliner after headliner after headliner as far as americans are concerned or you know anybody from north america for that matter and out there they're just like everyday joe schmoes as it's a trip but um it was definitely an experience to have. I recommend everybody trying to do that at least. And same thing with like Burning Man. Um, I, I got into Burning Man after my after I met my wife. She'd been going for ten years before I I showed up. So she's coming up on her, I think, 
16th or 17th year of going to Burning Man. So in other interviews, you chat a lot about the goals you have with your wife of, of sailing the world and, and allocating a lot of time to, to being on the water. Where did that goal come about? Was that something, was that a vision that you and your wife came together for, or was it something from your childhood? I actually had never even contemplated sailing <laughs> ever until I met her. Um, it, I mean, I've seen people sail. I've uh, boats out. There's boats out the Delta where I grew up. There's you can sail out there. It never just never really crossed my mind about me actually doing it and taking it up. Then I met her. She gave me her father's backstory. Um, he was an old school pirate. Legitimate when I say pirate in all forms of the definition, pirate. He used to uh, transfer a lot of Thai stick and hashish from uh, this area. I love how Siri keeps popping up and recording what I say. That's not good. <laughs> Siri can shut the fuck up right now. Oh, she's back. Uh, sorry about that. So, I'll be listening. <laughs> seriously. Um, so yeah, she like she grew up on a partially on a sailboat. Like I said, she had nannies in Singapore. She would always she was always on a boat in some way, shape, or form with her mom and her dad. Uh, her dad was been sailing since he was a, a teenager. From what I understand, I never got to meet him. Um, unfortunately, he passed away in prison in Indonesia after spending 18 years there um, for the hashish and tie stick that we just spoke of. Um, it's a little bit of a long, convoluted story, but to break it down, he had it's it's a movie. It's literally a movie. When my wife Mercedes explained it to me. I was like, you're full of shit. I mean, this just, it sounds like, you know, a different version of blow, uh, or something like That's that. You know? It's, it was intense. I mean, he had one last job to do and he, for, I like, I don't know all the details. I usually like her to talk about it and she's, it's always hard for her to do so, you know, obviously for obvious reasons or whatnot, but long story short, he had one more job to do and went and did it and never came back. And. The DA was looking for him in Southern California. He dipped out, handled this business, got caught up in Indonesia. And obviously it's a, that's one of, that's, is the largest Muslim country in the world, uh, per capita. Um, you can look it up. It's pretty crazy. I had no idea that, that Indonesia was, had the most Muslim. I didn't even realize they were that big. No, it's, they're not, but it's just the, the amount of people there are majority are Muslim and it's, so it's the, the most pop, mostly populated Muslim country. And they don't fuck um, No, that's, I mean, he's lucky he didn't get the death penalty, but they, they locked him up and to kind of compare and contrast, if he was in America, he probably would have spent five, six years in prison for what he did. But oh. since he was in Indonesia, um, he couldn't get extradited or anything like that. He was just, he was stuck there and she went and she went and got to see him a couple of times. Um, I think two or three times while we were together and about a, a, a last year, which was, I want to say two or three years ago, she was working on getting him out. He got, she got his visa and got all that stuff, all the paperwork lined up with the embassy out there. And he fell ill and got sick a month before he was supposed to be released. We had his plane ticket, his, uh, everything set for him here. And the thing that she, that he talked about mostly before he passed to, to Mercedes was that when he got home, he was going to teach us how to sail. So, and that was one of the things that Mercy said when I first got together with hers, the, um, 
Like you're going to have to be into sailing. You're going to need a passport. Um, and you're going to have to love cannabis because I grow cannabis. I think those were the three things. It's like, I'm down for it all. Let's, <laughs> like, let's go. <clears throat> and sure enough, her dad was supposed to do that with us. Yeah. And unfortunately, he didn't get to do that. The trippy thing was, is when we got our first sailboat, it was a 23-foot sailboat. Little tiny thing. Um, we came across this thing. And it's a couple thousand bucks for it. And we didn't really have the cash at that moment in time. And as soon as we were going to go to check it out, the Mercedes got a deposit from her father um, as from his pension, I believe, or from whatever he had from wow. like uh, social, social security. She got a social security check. Like literally the day before we were supposed to go and check out this belt. Like it was a sign. Oh, like God. if you believe in juju and good karma or whatever it is to her, it was a fucking sign. And, and it was, it obviously was meant for us to get the boat and start, start this journey. So we went and got the sailboat. We learned how to sail on Tahoe, did our thing there. And then, uh, upgraded just recently, <laughs> but well, we got trained, uh, we got certified, uh, American sailing association in San Diego, certified up to charter up to 50 foot sailboats. Um, cool. and then we spent a few more years kind of just grinding on uh, YouTube, watching all the YouTube channels that are the sailing channels. Um, obviously with my mechanical background and whatnot, I kind of already knew the, the mechanical systems and electrical systems on boats, just like they are in motorhomes and cars. So that was kind of now, came. Were you a mechanic I, I, or a transmission mechanic? I pretty much did everything. Um, I mean, I did basic mechanical work at the beginning, did, uh, I did a lot of lift. I worked in lift kit shots, like lifting trucks, lowering trucks and cars and things of that nature. Um, got into transmission R and R, which is remove and replace. Uh, I never really built transmissions, but yeah, I mean, like I said, from 15 all the way up to, I guess five, six years ago now, all I ever did was automotive. That's all I knew aside from graffiti art and music. I didn't have a normal job. Didn't sit. At I wish desk. I was. I wish I was that comfortable around an engine. Then I would. Yeah, yo, hopping on a sailboat would feel a lot more comfortable because, like, okay, I can figure out how not to drown. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, if, if if the engine starts fucking up and there's no fucking and I don't know how to really sail, I'm just learning. Like, okay, now I'm fucked. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's definitely there's definitely a learning curve, nonetheless. I mean, it's, we're still we're, like now. So we got this bigger boat. We have a 52 foot sailboat in the Bay Area. Um, we just got it a few years back. The owner of the boat's named John. My wife's name is John. Once again, she thought there was some weird connection. He's also a, a Zen Buddhist as well. And her mom is Buddhist as well. So her, everything kind of just aligned with this boat and we got a really good deal on it. So now we have a new home in Sausalito, California, which is a 52 foot sailboat. It's a Tiana center cockpit cutter rig. If anybody knows on chats or whatever that, what that is, um, that it'd be way too much for me to explain, but it's a beautiful boat. It's got a few, uh, few things that need to be worked on, but, uh, it was just felt like the time was right for getting that boat. And now we have the chance to kind of learn on such a, you know, a boat that's double the size of what we initially bought and invested in and, uh, spend some time on that in the Bay. But yeah, going back to the, the beginning of it, like I was, when she talked about sailing and we got this little tiny 23 foot boat, I was like, yeah, I could do this shit all day. And then we started watching these channels and seeing, then she's like, I want to do that. I want to go blue water crossing as well. So ocean, we need an ocean boat, a blue water crossing boat. And that was a lot to take in because me and her are both only child. 
Um, her mom's still around, obviously. Her dad's passed. My parents are still around. And, I mean, they're not getting any younger, so we're trying to... And my mom doesn't fly because she's got uh, health problems that kind of keeps her from that. So it's not like I can go and sail somewhere and go to a different country and have her fly out. Um, kind of impossible. So, oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, that looks like one of, one of them. Yep, that's a cutter rig. Looks like a center cockpit. That's what our boat looks like, pretty much. Very cool. Um, but yeah. That's kind of the sailing thing. We've just been, that's what we, well, I mean, we have, I now have two passions. The car thing, I always, I'm always going to love cars and automotive and classic cars and things of that nature. Um, I can go on and on about automotive, but that I lost ambition and I lost drive for that career real quick when I just constantly got bombarded by people who would come to shops that weren't happy, you know, because obviously their car broke down. They're not going to be stoked about that. The, the last couple of shops that I did get to work in, people would come in with, you know, stacks of money because they want to do something cool with their cars. But I just slowly lost the passion for it. And I can kind of say the same for music as well. To a certain extent, when it all st started turning into this shit, all the digital stuff and the controllers and Serato. Um, I mean, I grew up with vinyl, so I was a little jaded. And that's another term that we like to use in our junglist community is jaded junglist. Yeah. We're kind of set in our ways. Um, but cannabis, when that came around, I, and my boy, uh, Maddie Bubbs showed me rosin. I mean, I already knew as I was already helping my wife grow and whatnot, but then we got found in the concentrate stuff. I, it was, I never looked back. I had no desire to continue, um, well, how was, automotive stuff. How know? was it finding out about, you know, your wife having that conversation with you, with you about her cultivating, was it an, I'm all in. And, and you were just diving in and, and learning as much as possible? Or was there a slow evolution of getting involved in the cannabis scene? Um, well, to go from the start from the very beginning, I guess when me and her got together, I used to have the saying with my buddy Arson, uh, dirty hands, clean money. Um, it wasn't anything, any, a jab at anybody in particular. Like I, I owned my own house when I was 23, year old, 23 years old and I had, my boys, it was kind of a, a spot where I would have my boys come and live with me to kind of get their head right. And like if they had, you know, drug problems or whatever, they'd come to my house, reset, and then hopefully go back out and be a normal person. But they also, I also had people, you know, coming out and uh, they, they'd have 10 packs underneath their bed. You know, I'm not going to name names on that, any of them or whatnot, but I was around the cannabis from, from an early age. And smoking flour as a teenager or whatnot, I did all that. But as far as me and Mercedes, she just she saw that and uh, that motto, the dirty hands, clean money, and me being automotive and like never and never really seeing me around any type of illicit activity or whatnot. So she thought I was a little bit more straight edge. Uh, so she asked Arson, she's like, "Is he going to trip on me having a garden?" It's like, and she's like, "He's he's like pretty much no, you're good to go." So I didn't really know she had one. I think until I actually came to came to her house and she took me. Uh, Took me down the road to check it out. I was like, "Wow, okay, I see what you're doing. I like this. Let's, what's up?" <laughs> I feel like if I ever met a girl, I'm married, and my girl does help me. Do it. But like, if I ever met a girl <laughs> when I was younger like that, and like she brought me into a girl, I'd be like, "Will you marry me?" I remember having <laughs> conversations, and Jameson and I have have had this conversation before, like when he was last time in town, and I ended good relationships because the one of the girls she was like 
you know, going to medical school, whatever. And she's like, would you stop smoking so much weed? And I was like, nah, we're done. That was it. Sorry. I'm out of here. Yeah, and she barely even smokes. I mean, like like I mentioned, she has uh, pretty bad asthma and things like that. I mean, she she just says loves growing a plant. She's got a good, a good green thumb. Does she so. not consume it in any way, shape, or form? No, she does. Just very, very seldom. <coughs> was there? Ever she can't really handle dabs or whatever. What, any of that? What's like, that? Was there, just, was there ever any rudimentary like hash making? Like, like, do you guys have finger hash around or anything like that? Or like, was it just maybe, like, maybe from the just flowers? Maybe probably from the, the trim bins during trim scenes, but that was really about it. Where there was really no concentrated form of it around, at least sure. in our environment, aside from the flower. She's an old school grower. She was taught by an old school grower. She still grows in an old school manner. Um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that's kind of her mentality with it all, which I totally understand, even though like I'm kind of getting more into the, the newer technology and the, trying to elevate ourselves and still maintain that og style of growing which is kind of tough but no there wasn't really um too much around uh, until rosin popped around you know legitimately about six years ago or so when your friend came over and, and showed you this rosin and the wheels started turning what what, what the progression looked like from there it was pretty quick he uh i think he showed me uh bubble man's channel hash church <clears throat> and um showed me phil soul soul grown solventless um, talking about pressing with a hair straightener and using his foot to smash down on it. And he told me about that. He's like, yeah, people were taking nugs and pressing them and getting the oil from the nugs. I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. Uh, what are we using? He said a hair straightener. So luckily enough, I kind of a light, light bulb popped above my head. I was like, well, I have a bearing press downstairs. You know, I have, I've been working for autom with automotive stuff. So bearing press made the most sense. I was like, let's take the the wife's hair straightener and take it apart and JB weld that bitch to the press and see what happens. Like just going with our hands or our feet isn't enough. So that was my very first press was a was a a bearing press, 10 ton bearing press or 12 ton bearing press with a deconstructed hair straightener welded to it. And then uh found out real quick that wasn't gonna work. So one of our um our camp daddies is what I like to call him from Bernie Man, a guy named Joe. He runs a noble metal fabrication out here in grass Valley. He, um, I went up to his shop and he made me a set of plates, made me a set of aluminum plates, like three by five, weird, awkward size. And, uh, I got a PID controller from like mash 710. I think it, what it was. Um, I don't even know if they're around anymore. <clears throat> Ordered that thing out, hooked it all up to the, to the press. And started pressing flour with that initially because I mean I didn't I didn't really know how to even make hash at that point in time. I knew about hashish, I knew about traditional hash, obviously and Thai stick and uh, and Moroccan hash and and things of that nature, but never really thought about extracting it or understanding how to at that point in time. So Maddie got pretty uh, got over it pretty quick because one of our first attempts to press, I didn't realize that the controller was way hotter than it was set to. Cause it was a cheap China controller and it was in Celsius and I set it to 80 degrees Celsius, which is, should be like 180, 190, somewhere around there. And come to find out it was at like 280, 300 degrees. And we put the flour in there, squished it and it just like popped and sizzled and splattered all over the place. And it was, it was just black tar that came out. I think some even got on Maddie's face and he's like, nope, I'm done. Um, I'm cool. 
Uh, he didn't have the patience for it, uh, which is fine. I understand it, but <laughs> I did. So I kept wanting to pursue it. I was like, I know I can dial this in. I understand the concept. It, it makes sense to me. And I understand what's, what the reaction is that's happening. So let me see if I can dial this down. I sure enough was able to dial down that controller, but eventually ended up getting a, a Dake 10 ton t tabletop press, D-A-K-E 10 ton, and uh, getting a set of lid extraction plates. He's actually from Canada as well. He's no longer in existence from what I understand. He was, um, <clears throat> that was a touchy subject. He was kind of MIA for a while, but in the plates, some of the heater uh, elements on it cracked and it took him like six, three, three to five months to, to get new heating elements. Um, he was one of the first guys I saw that would constantly dab online. Like one of the big, just like all his stories were him dabbing and then somewhat talking about his, his plates. So I sold the plates off because they just weren't what I was looking for. And then ended up getting, um, yeah, I got the low temp and this all happened within a couple of years, but I, from the flower, after that, we had that issue. We even tried pressing wet flour, like straight off the bud flour or off the, off the stem, that, which was d describe to me that project. <laughs> waterfalls everywhere. <laughs> like every direction, just waterfalls, <laughs> waterfalls of like purple water and really little to no rosin. It was a shit show. It was pretty that way. Uh, so I learned real quick not to do that. I was like, well, I need to figure out how to get this oil off this, off this, uh, off these flowers. And my boy, uh, Dustin at the time was like, well, you can get like five gallon bucket, put your material in there and put a drill with a paint mixer in it and just smash that shit. And there's these things called bubble bags you can get. And it was kind of, uh, a wrap ever since then. The rest is history. We, I f figured out where I could get the bubble bags at. Um, can't remember my first set. I, I, I've never owned a bubble, uh, Marcus, the bubble man. I, th I think you said on like another podcast, it was the bubble man guy or whatever. Yeah. I think bubble. I got the bubble guy. Whatever was on Amazon at that time. I think, I think that was my first kit learned real quick that those were shit. So I saved up for the ice extracts bags. Um, and those are the ones that I use currently to this day. Uh, still have my original pair from a few years ago because I have multiple multiple sets of bags that I kind of work. Do you want to talk about through. why 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 those other ones are shit? And why I because I don't think we've ever talked about it on the show. Yeah, so but like uh, it's so obvious to hash makers and people that have made the mistake. Bubble bag dudes uh, bags. He uses a really inferior product, and what ends up find what people finding out is the microns way way off, either upwards or downwards. It'll be a uh, for example, you have a seventy three micron bag, and it might actually be an eighty or 85 or a 60 or 65. And it's just uh, the, the, the quality of the bags and the mesh that he, the micron mesh that he uses doesn't hold up. And if those sizes are off, you're always going to have inconsistent heads in different bags, um, or losing heads in something that you weren't going to keep, um, or degrading your product because it's not getting filtered the right way. Uh, the same goes as the, it goes the same for anything that you get on Amazon or any, any inferior, cheaper products that might look quality initially a lot of the bag companies on amazon per se are not the best unless i mean when it comes to work bags like the the zipper bags that you put material in to wash in those can be a little off up or down you know usually 20 220 micron so i mean if they're up up a little bit or down a little bit that's not too much at the end of the world but yeah that's kind of the the difference in like compared to ice extracts or or a marcus bubble man or bolt bags or even Rosin Evolution now, they all use a higher quality 
mesh that they're quality controlling as well and testing. And like now with the growth of like a macro video and macro pictures and whatnot, you can actually dial those in and, and check and see how your mesh is doing or if it's the, the proper size, so on and so forth. So I was just about to say the consistencies I've seen under microscopes, it's ridiculous. You look at a nice extract bag and the, even the way that it's weaved, yeah. you know, it, unreal. Yeah. It's, um, so I like uh, Rosin Evolution. I mean, he's got an affordable bag sets and, um, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure he told me last, uh, one of our first conversations that we had when we met in person that he's, uh, he used to work in, uh, I know for a fact he used to work in like skydiving and, um, and, um, paragliding industry for nylon and things of that nature. And I think he even has patents in, in such in, in nylon fabrics. So he understands the material a lot like probably a lot more than the people who are other people who are actually making bags as well currently, uh, which I, which is why I use his bags, his uh, press bags. And I also use his wash bags as well. We're jumping ahead a little bit, but what is your washing methodology? Uh, Nick, are you, are you a hand washer with a paddle or are you using machines? I started out doing, uh, using the machines. You know, the 20 gallon bubble magic wash. Well, initially, like I said, I started using the paint mixer and, and, uh, and buckets, which was a horrible idea. I learned quick not to do that. I also learned that on bubble man show as well. I learned a lot of my shit by watching his, his hash church. Um, and also starting to just kind of pick, pick people's brains who would answer questions of mine, just like people do nowadays. But I did the machine washing for a while. I had three of those machine washers all modified and. Then I got, I learned about the hand washing technique and how you can have a lot more control, obviously. So I decided to go and grab a couple 20 gallon, 32 gallon vessels or trash cans and a paddle and slowly started to kind of understand the concept of hand washing and kind of ditched the machines all together. And then since then I've upgraded to a stainless steel vessel by S9 Steelworks out of uh, Michigan and. He made me a custom 44 gallon stainless steel vessel with a um, swage lock, swage lock, uh, ball valves and, and tri clamps and all that, all the quality stuff. I saw you post that today or yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Oh that's my, my God. That, that thing is beautiful. <clears throat> it's awesome. It's I love it. Cool. Yeah. He does a really good job. He's a, he's a mom and pop shop as well. So that's one of the big things that I push on is to supporting and helping mom and pop shops that are on the same level as me because that's kind of what I consider Rackums. We're definitely mom and pop. S9, you're saying? Yeah, S9 still works uh, with a Z. Yeah. You remember your first dab, Nick? Like, w was it something memorable or is it something you can't even, you know? <laughs> I think my first dab was some of that black tar I was talking about before. That you had once not Yeah, I'm pretty okay. sure that was... Uh, that That's was really cool. That, you know, your first experience was actually something. You, you skipped the whole BHO yeah. craze and you saved yourself, like you saved your health. Yeah, I didn't even know about BHO until after I learned about hash and how to how to wash hash and how to wash flour into making the making hash. I didn't know about extracting with solvents. My buddy uh, Matty Bubs used to do that shit at, at his house. He would just he blast with the glass columns in fucking doors like an idiot. I I, I love you, Matty, but that was dumb. Um, yeah. Yeah, he learned quick to not do that after seeing what people were doing to themselves. And that, that to me too, also 
involved a lot of uh, chemicals and and explosion shit, and I'm not trying to have that uh, anywhere around me or my family. So, so did you? And, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, and also like learning the fact of how much, like especially back then, the the fact of not being able, people not being able to purge their shit right, yeah. like not ne you never knowing the quality of butane they're using or how much they're leaving behind, so on and so forth. So it it became a turnoff really quick. I respect their people's uh, process and their and the way that they do their stuff with solvents nowadays, but it just wasn't my my steez. Come a long way since then. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Well, were you were you immediately drawn to like go out and find a good example of that product to try to know what you were striving for, or was this something you kind of just did yourself and, and continue to improve and follow the improvement? By yeah, I mean the the first real dab that I tried, it's like that was actually <clears throat> on the shelves at a dispensary, and this is uh, obviously before Prop sixty four in California when anybody can just take their their product to a dispensary and put it and get it bought and put on the shelves. But, uh, about a half gram of soil grown solventless is rosin, um, for 80 bucks, a half gram at the dispensary. And I tried it and it was flower amazing. Rosin? Um, no, I don't think it was flower rosin. Pretty sure it wasn't, but I, I don't know if he was releasing flower rosin to dispensaries then, uh, but very well probably could have, because that was kind of the beginning of it all. Um, and it was amazing. It was not expensive at one point. Yeah. I was like, I, as I left, I'm like, I'm never buying a gram of rosin from a dispensary ever again, if it's going to be this price, but I wanted to see what I was working with and what I had to come, what I had to compete with, I guess you could say. Absolutely. Um, and I didn't really look at Phil and Soil Grown Solomon as competition, but, uh, I more so as somebody that I can look up to and, uh, and reach that level bar. at some point in time. Yeah. Like he was, he was the bar. So. I found his stuff, tried it out, and I had a shitty, actually, I still have this rig that this is my first rig. It's like this banger costs more than the rig. And yeah, it's, <laughs> but I smoked out of this and uh, was floored. I mean, I, whoa. Holy shit. <laughs> I got to turn that chick off. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, and so that was something you were, you were really impressed by. Like that was something that they really had the fuck on you. Absolutely. Yeah. That was like, all right, I know what I need to strive for. So, um, but I need to figure out how to, how to wash hash better. And that's when I started to learn how to, I started using our trim from my wife's garden. Um, that was the, the easiest access material I could get. So, and she, mind you, but back then was growing for flour. So she would dry her stuff for flour because smokable consumption, you know, not anything else. So she would drive five, six, seven days, have her flour dried, you know, to, to a crisp more or less. <clears throat> so the hash that I was getting from that trim obviously was not ideal, but it worked. It gave me the opportunity to learn and understand and, and better perfect my craft. And then I started picking up, uh, some of our buddies trim, started watching bigger, bigger, uh, batches. And then from there is trying to figure out how to dry it better. This is before freeze dryers, obviously. Um, I was doing a lot of air drying. I got, I got schooled on how to air dry and, and, com and complete the drying process in less than three days, um, under the right circumstances. Um, shout out to Billy, a uh, rosin presser from back in the day. He used to make a rosin press when they first started coming around. He no longer does that now. Um, but he's the one that taught me how to air dry hash 
And that was a game changer for me. I didn't know any other way, but besides, you know, grating it on a pizza box, then he showed me some tech on how to dry it on, uh, on baking sheets and with fans and parchments and paper and, uh, and like beach towels and things of that nature. And I had dried hash in, in about two to three days and started pressing that. And then once that happened, that was like, that was uh, a new level, you know, I, that happened within my first year. So about five, five, four or five years ago, that took place and Wait, never looked back. Beach towels, you say? Yeah. So to kind of, uh, to kind of make, have, have it make sense. So like if this was a, a baking tray, I would lay a beach towel down on it and then I put a piece of parchment over that. And then I'd sieve that, the wet hash on top of that in a thin layer. And then I put another piece of parchment on top of that with weights on it. Cause I had little six inch fans that would blow directly down onto the, onto the baking tray. So the beach towel would act as, act as a wicking agent, pulling the moisture down and the fans would push the moisture further. Uh, and they weren't on full blast, but they're and under the right circumstances with your environmental temperature and your humidity, I kept my temperature underneath 60, 65, kept my humidity as low as I could. And within a day and a half to two days, sometimes three, depending on how thick the, the hash layers were, my hash was dry and ready to be pressed. Um, it also made the best texture hash I've ever, cool. ever had in my life. I love air dried hash. I hate freeze dryer hash. I was just about I, to ask you. I don't what, like what's your reason. Why did you never make the dive? From You're like the uh, fourth or fifth person we've talked to that says the same thing. As far as like freeze dryer hash, it's just uh, the texture, the consistency, the 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 way it feels, the the granular aspect of, of air dried hash, and also. I think there's something to be said about the slight bit of oxidation that happens. Um, most people understand that as color, how it changes from maybe a lighter hash to darker hash, depending if you're air drying. Obviously that's non-existent with freeze drying, but freeze drying, freeze dried hash was just like pollen to me. It looked and acted like pollen. Um, but I knew I had to scale up. I couldn't have my space. My space is really small that I work in and I work by myself and I couldn't have, you know, two or three or four baking, baking racks in my area. It just wasn't feasible. At one point I had a hundred pizza boxes stacked on, uh, um, shelves. I was drying in a hundred pizza boxes with the same thing, fans shooting around them and everything. Um, so it just, it was, wasn't scalable in my, in, in my location. And the next best bet was the freeze dryer. So I just, I was kind of forced to go in that direction. Um, that's really the only reason why I started uh, freeze drying hash. If I had the means and the ways, I'd still continue to be air drying. But also the the amount the amount the volume of product I was washing in a single wash or in a single day, I couldn't uh, the air drying couldn't keep up with it. So it only made sense to to scale up to the freeze dryer. So you worked on you had the you know in your early days you exclusively worked on dry material. Um, what were there certain things that you picked up one that was remarkably different working with dry material versus live material, like in the wash bin or, or in the free dryer on the microplane or at any point in the process? Well, the biggest thing was obviously the sieving, the sieving aspect of it, sieving dry material versus fresh frozen. You're not going to see fresh frozen. You're not going to put that through a baking sieve more often than not. I mean. With dried hash, 
the cool thing about it is you could take the patty of dry hash that you just pressed with your hands on a 225 micron screens, slide that patty into the freezer for a couple minutes, just to kind of wick a little bit more of that remaining moisture out, pull it out and it would break up and crumble like wet sand in a sieve. And you just use, use a spoon and that would, that would crumble up, you know, based off of uh, your environmental temperature. Um, which is something I always bring up. You don't want to, you always want to make sure that you're dealing with hash at a lower temperature, uh, colder temperature, if at all possible, especially if you're dealing with greasy stuff. But the, that was the biggest thing is I, I learned really quick with fresh frozen that you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, see that you had to use a microplaner, which meant you had to freeze the hash solid before you went and did that. There's obviously pros and cons to that. There's pluses and minuses to microplaning. People will argue that it shears heads, which, I mean, you're running against sharp, sharp objects. It's going to shear some heads. Um, but the reason that I kind of focused more on dry material initially is because that's all I had. That's, that's all I had available to me. I didn't have anybody fresh freezing their material back then. Um, did you notice any subtle differences between dried and cured material? Um, depending on the grower. Yeah, because I mean, if the grower was not growing for hash in mind, more often than not, it would have a darker resin, a darker oil. Um, if they, because most of them were growing to full term or even a little bit longer to make sure they get their yields or whatnot. So I learned real quick that a, a dry material depend also depending on the post harvest process, um, how people harvested, how quick they dried, um, how long they dried, what temperatures they used to dry at, that all end up, ended up. Uh, reflecting back in the product that I got, whether it was flour or trim, um, fresh frozen, obviously you're kind of skipping all of that. You're uh, the only thing that you can really, the only way you can really degrade your fresh frozen, in my opinion, I guess would be if you, if you had an eight week strain and you grew it to nine weeks and it was a lot more mature. And then you harvested for fresh frozen, you have, uh, you have more of a, a high likelihood to have more amber heads than you would opaque or clear, obviously. So, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just your, your oil, your trichomes becoming more mature and transferring over to different cannabinoids. Um, we can, which is what we can talk about later, but those are the big differences with dry material. I knew I learned real quick that I could agitate it a little bit harder than I could fresh frozen because those heads are now a lot more solidified. Um, with that being said, I also found out that I would knock off stocks a lot easier by the harder agitation. So kind of taking a step back and understanding that I, I can go a little harder, but to remember not to go too hard because then you're just, you know, breaking off more contamination with fresh frozen. Those stocks are a lot more viable and, and stuck to the plant matter to where they won't get knocked off as easy. Um, obviously based off the fact that they still are retaining all their moisture. Uh, the downside is if with fresh frozen, if you don't understand fresh frozen heads, they're like a water balloon. They're not as solidified as your, as your dried hash. So in regards to that, you have more of a chance of breaking those, those water balloons if you agitate too hard and also dealing with chlorophyll because of the remaining amount of water that's still in the plant. So if you had to make a sweeping generalization of yourself, would you say that you prefer personal preference to, to consume uh, a dry product or a, de a dead product versus a loud product? If I use the Egyptian's curve. <laughs> the Jesus rosin. Um, yeah, it's, I don't really have a preference. I guess what my preference is, is that I have 
what I'm ingesting at that moment in time, I want it to have a proper lasting effect that it had that is flavorful. And like when it comes to the color and the looks of something, I mean, yeah, it's something that's like something that's like like that is beautiful, right? It's it's amazing. But something that might be a slightly darker is can be just as just as amazing and that's the like i learned that on so i learned that so quick like that stuff right there you can see how how much darker it is this stuff is so much louder than that other jar yeah. like ridiculous well, louder there's a lot of rosin racing stuff there yeah there is i mean that's unfortunate too because because it's all about education and not people not understanding i mean it's not there, there will be those people who are educated who are just like they draw a line like anything darker than this i won't fuck with but I mean, I I won't be. I'm not that type of guy. So when it, but if, when it comes to dry material and fresh frozen, live rosin, hash rosin, um, anything that comes from dry material, I call hash rosin. Anything that comes from fresh frozen, I just call it live rosin. That those are my terms. I know other people say live hash rosin or whatever. But okay, um, speaking, speaking of terms, what what do you define hash as? Like, is it an all encompassing thing or is it a defined term? Hash hash are the trichomes. That's to me. That's what that's what hash is. Hashish is are the trichomes, the sugar, the crystals of the plant. Um, that's, and that's as, as about as simple as a definition I can get. And that's what I use when I talk to people, um, hash, loose resin, same thing. Uh, when you extract the oil from that, I consider that hash oil. It's I'm trying to just keep it, keep it dumbed down and simple because that's what it is. Hash oil is a byproduct of hash, i.e. rosin, you know, that's, and whether it's extracted with, uh, I don't think like. I don't think BHO products or solvent solvent based products is hash, but a byproduct of the hash from the plant. I mean, you're you're liquefying all the trichomes, so there's no longer any more solid structure. Uh, that's how I define that. It's it's hash oil. Everything everything that we make as far as a concentrate is a hash oil from so, some way, any way, shape, or form. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with that. I. Hash oil is rosin. Hash is hash from trichomes from the plant. It's about the only way I can describe it. So in one of our last interviews, we had uh, Buddha on from the Hatch Matters. He was the first person who I have ever heard from Jesus Tech. Um, <laughs> and so I want to shout him out first of all. And, and second of all, I want to say, I want to ask you, you know, what experience do you have with a partial cure? Um, or, you know, temporary hang and, and then freeze, uh, breath frozen material. Do you have I, a lot of I mean, I'm pretty sure he heard that he heard that partial cure or Jesus, Jesus tech thing from me, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it was a, it was just kind of a joke playing a joke on the, the fact of everybody calling their stuff live rosin when in fact, none of our rosin is, is alive at any point in time. Even the plot, the, the plant matter that we're washing is not alive using the term live to describe that it was, it was harvested and frozen while it was still alive. But as far as uh, Jesus, Jesus rosin or Jesus tech or, or dead rosin, zombie rosin, um, that's all kind of a play on what, on the post-harvest process once again. So as the post-harvest process is something that I'm kind of writing an SOP for right now across the board, whether it's fresh frozen harvest or full term harvest or the partial, uh, partial dry harvest. And I've done a, a few tests and uh, R and D myself with our single source product that we have. Um, I've had a few other friends do it as well with smaller batches just to see um, how it would turn out. 
And my, my final conclusion is pretty much this. It's, um, as far as the end product, you still maintain majority of that live whole plant, fresh frozen terpene profile, but you also up your yield more so than your live, your, your whole plant, fresh frozen hash and not as much as your dried hash. So let's take a GMO, for example, a GMO could yield fresh frozen, what, six, seven, eight percent, somewhere around there. A uh, fresh frozen version and dried version, somewhere around 20, 25, maybe 30, depending on, on who grew it and how they grew it. With, with the, do your tests and factor out water activity? Like how that was the one thing that I, I didn't get to actually dial in the, the most. That was the, that was the big question, question mark over everybody's head is how much water is actually being removed in that short period of time. Uh, but I know it's a decent amount. Um, I, the one thing I didn't get to do is, is like weigh a fresh plant in comparison to a plant that's been dried for five days in comparison to a plant that's been dried for 12, 14 days. That's the one thing I didn't get to do, but I noticed a big shift in, in water evaporation from the plant after a good, you know, four to seven days, somewhere in that mark, uh, the majority of it is dissipated, but, um, so if someone who's done that test and, and, and really have a, a full strong understanding of this, what what are your thoughts on just industry hash yields in general when somebody says, Oh yeah, she did this or she did that? I mean, the you know, was it grown in a how was it grown and when was it last watered? Are two things that I think would have potentially significant effects on true yield numbers when we're trying to use a metric to compare apples to apples from maker to maker. And, yeah. you know, is, is that something that you have put any thought into and, and considered, or do you think that it's a, it's a good comparison what we have right now? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, that's definitely something that you have to, th you have to take in, into consideration. Um, the, the time, the time spent flushing the flower before it gets harvested is I think the definite, uh, importance, especially if you're using salts and things of that nature. Um, if you're using anything that's not organic and even organic stuff, you just want to make sure you have a good solid flush on that, on that product. I think there's something to be said, um, with the, with the, with the final ending days to a plant and how they're, they're managed prior to harvest, um, whether it's fresh, whether it's going to be used for fresh frozen or, or a partial dry or a full term dry. Um, but going back to like the, the partial dry. If you take, for example, that, so what I found out is the fact that I still like taking the GMO, I still had the loudness and the way that the, the, the terpene profile expressed itself while the plant was growing still encapsulated in the hash that I produced from a partial dry, but I also upped my yield anywhere between, I, I think it was about four to 6%. So something in fresh frozen that would have given me 6% is now giving me anywhere between 12 to 15%. Uh, now is it, is it actual physical more hash or is it just percentage? It's just the actual, it's, just, it's percentage from the weight. Cause now you've extracted a majority of that water weight. So and it, it's a lot of people, I guess a lot of people who don't understand hash don't understand the fact that with fresh frozen, it's, it's kind of become a, a, a common idea or practice that it's about a five to one. So five, five wet pounds equals one dry, one dry pound, roughly Uh Cuban grower told me 2,250 grams to be exact where he got that number from. I don't know, but 
that's what a lot of people base it off of is somewhere between the four to one, four, five to one ratio. Um, so the only thing that I've, I have yet to figure out and dial in is the actual water loss or, um, the moisture loss from the plant via between separating it between fresh, frozen, partial and full term dry. Uh, but I know there's a difference and I got Pedro's grow room. He's doing that. He's doing partial dries with all of his material now. And he's had extreme success. It just, it, it hits different, I guess you could say, because it's still now the trichomes have given themselves to slight, given them a chance to slight, you've given them a chance to slightly mature a little bit by hanging, hang drying them for a couple of days or a week, let's say. And you're losing some of those volatiles too, right? So you're that's another thing too, is that a little bit of that head fraction that may otherwise stand in the way of some of the other turbs. So like, yep. I like this. I've, I've been saying this for time for, for my solvent shit too, the three to three to five. Yeah. Okay. You're, you're changing the, 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 you know, the molecular structure and how the terpenes mm -hmm. are, are like, you're obviously you're going to off gas your most volatile ones. Cause they off gas at what? 65, 75 degrees, roughly like your most volatile yep. monoterpenes. So you're already, you're already getting rid of those. And we don't want those anyways, because those are the ones that are the most harsh to our bodies and throats and lungs. I mean, we found that out, um, slowly, but surely. So I, I that, there's that benefit on top of the higher yield. And also on top of having somewhat of that's like, my whole goal is to try to get my, my end product to smell just like it did on the plant. And obviously that's going to be different after drying because your terpene profiles change drastically from, from fresh on the plant to dry cured material. Well, do you have some material that you've worked with, like the same cultivar, fresh frozen, Jesus tacked, and then fully dry? And like, what, what, A, what, what are those varietals and what were your observations? There was a, we had one strain in house that was, it was kind of still to this day a mystery. Um, we, we got it on the assumption that it was a Mason diesel or Amherst diesel. It, uh, didn't have any smell or structure like diesel at all. I did a little research and I've, I come to the conclusion that it might've been cantaloupe kush. It was just a strain we got from a friend of ours in Mendo and it was 11 week strain. This thing had the biggest, grew the biggest structures, like, like literally like the size of this, it was just out of this world. It was a, the only downside to it was this 11 week strain, but. I got the chance to fresh freeze a batch. I got a chance to partial cure and do a full term. Um, a terpene, that was the one, like you had a question about my all time favorite strain, then what I could, what I would have kept that would have been that strain. Um, but the time frame, which just didn't fit for harvest for the, for the wife, uh, 10, 11 weeks is way too long for her, but it made some of the best product I ever worked with fresh frozen, partial and full term dry. Like every it hit numbers across the board every time without fail from hash yields to rosin yields, even the, and flower yields before all that. And so like how similar was the fresh, uh, was the fresh frozen once it had cured out, once it had fully cured out to the Jesus tech, once it had fully cured out, like when you were able to finally get it down to apples and apples and you had a cured out version of each or you, or even the fresh pressed version of each, like what were there? distinct things that you notice different about those three versions of the same thing. I think, I think the fresh press, well, no, not the fresh press, but the fresh frozen batch and partial batch did give me better yields and better quality hash. The dried, the dried material ended up with a lot more stocks, but still 
gave me, it was probably one of our only plants that we grew in-house that gave me a true six, six star, which I don't, I don't ever use that term lightly. Like a lot of our stuff that, that the wife was produced isn't, is not six star because, and that's no diss to her. She just never grew for hash. She grew for the flower production and not the hash. Um, but that was one of the ones that she didn't have to really do shit with. And on the plant, this terpene profile smelled like the ripest cantaloupe you've ever smelled in your life. It was just that is the only way I could describe it. And that just got more gassier and gassier as I did the partial dry and the full term dry. So it, it started to off, uh, off gas and express itself and still a sweet, sweet melon aroma, but with just this funk on the back end. And the fresh frozen didn't have that. The fresh frozen was like the, like the, what the plant smelled like on the vine, on the stock. It was a trip. Interesting. That's very, I missed that one. Interesting. So let me ask you this. When, when something new comes in to your, uh, to your lab, do you have a, a standard operating procedure of the way you go about determining, um, how this, or what the final form factor for this material is, is, is going to be? Or is it something that you're able to tell right off the bat, or you actually have to take it through its paces to, to figure out where the best place for this material is? Um, I mean, if I'm getting something that I'm blind to that I've never worked on before or processed, um, if it's like, if it's just a trim bag or something, usually you can see the trim at the bottom of the bag or the, the hash at the bottom of the bag. That's usually a nice indicator, uh, depending on how much is in the bag. But all in all, I always like to do at least like a half pound, pound wash, um, regardless. Cause that's the only way you're going to really know for sure what you have and what you end up, what, what you're going to end up with. The last thing I want to do is take a 10 pack or 20 pounds or 30 pounds from somebody and wash it all. And it all just be absolute shit. And then have to come back to them and be like, sorry, I got low yields and the, and the final product came out dark and I don't know what I'm going to be able to do with this. Mm -hmm. And then they're out, they're at a loss as well. So I usually like to recommend to anybody that, that I work with or collab with, if it's not our own product, or even if it is our own product, let's just wash a pound or a half pound. Let's see what we get. If you can, if that person can let go of, of that much material, then I usually do that. And then we, we see where we see what we get. But now that the Mason jar tech has been coming around, that's been a big, big savior, especially with fresh frozen. It's, it's, it's uh, allowed people to get an idea, not a hundred percent idea but an idea of what they're working with before they even harvest and now we got the rosin dial so that's simply yeah. adam simply adam with this rosin dial can't wait to get mine in the mail hint hint <laughs> i uh, i want to i want to ask you about rosin uh or blending and pre and post wash uh is, is, a is it something that you're a proponent of and b is it is there uh have you found a difference washing blending prior to your walk versus after you mechanically separated the resin. Um, so you're talking about like blending two strains together? Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, um, you've also done on the extreme side of things. You talk quite a bit about you're pulling the THC out of some and then maybe saving the term. Oh, we're getting to that. We're getting to that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've done blended washes before. I've done a, I've done a few blended washes. Uh, I learned really quick and uh, actually just learned recently that that's not that's not the best idea unless you know your cultivars or, or you've ran those strains prior because you don't know how they're going to react with each other or indifferently uh, separately. You could have one that yields absolutely nothing and the other one dumps or vice versa, however you want to cut it. 
So without having the actual um, knowledge prior to washing the material that you that you got in your hand, it's a big risk. You're take, kind of taking a shot in the dark. So what I found out is that you just wash the strains separately. You can keep your micron separate or do full spec or whatever you want, but then you take smaller bits of that final product, whether it's the hash and mix them together or the rosin, ideally the rosin because it's easier, and mix those at, di at different percentages, 20 to 80, 50, 50, 60, 40, whatever, and play with those. And then you can play with a smaller amount instead of washing the whole lot together and getting what you're getting no matter what. Now you have a little bit more control and say so. So I think that's, I think that's cool. Like, I mean, I like to ask that question to everyone and as somebody who's done a bit of watching myself and a bit of, you know, hunting that, you know, even if they mostly all smell and look great, if you put those extra in for weight, you can end up more, more often than not. Like sometimes it just, it just adds to the bulk and it gets put in the wash, but sometimes you'll, you'll have one form bad apple who really grew in the bunch. And, and so. Yeah. I think those are wise words and, and be able to take your time and do the extra work and watch it separate. Um, it might be a bunch of extra work that you don't want to do, but it might end up with you having a really nice little bit of head stash instead of a lot of, you know, mid Z rosin. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, it gives you it once again, it kind of, it gives you more control over the situation, just like hand washing. It gives you the opportunity to manipulate it the way that you see fit and not, and like, even if you are hand washing two different batches now, now once, once those two flavors or those two strains cultivars are in that wash, there's no turning back. You're going to get what you're going to get. So the cool, the cool thing about playing with the rosin and mixing those two together or even three to make a totally different profile, it, that gives you the opportunity to be, have a lot more say so and control on it. Um, I find that a lot more pleasing, you know, one lead into what Brian was, was heading us to it there anyway, um, you know, Mechanical THCA separation. It's something that mm -hmm. you really, uh, you know, I'd say part of the space out for yourself in the industry with it and really openly share a tremendous amount, uh, with a tremendous amount of people with. And so for, for those people who are listening who, who are, um, aware of what mechanically separated THCA is, can you kind of give us a high level overview? Yeah. So more or less mechanical separation via the press is uh the process of the thca separation so taking rosin that you've already produced from said hash you name the cultivar you have you have this slab of rosin ideally a slab like you can uh you can cure it in mason jars but it's just a little bit more of a pain in the butt to kind of mold and fit how how i do it or just how this process works but if you can press your rosin now you have fresh press let's say you have 20 grams, 30 grams, whatever you make a puck out of it and you just let it rest to cure or nucleate, as some people would say, um, you're allowing it to change consistency. And ideally you want your fresh press to turn into a, a cold cure or a batter, um, kind of a crumblier, chalkier consistency, I guess you could say. And what you're looking for in that is that's usually typically in a, um, associated with a high, high concentration of THCA. Uh, if your if your fresh press rosin doesn't nucleate in that manner in a short a short period of time or it takes forever, it was my experience that uh, that there was a, a lower amount of physical THCA in that said rosin than something that would nucleate a lot quicker. So I learned first. I learned that. I also did learn this tech from uh, Phil Soil Growing Solventless. So 
across the board, he's got my, the utmost respect from me, uh, be above anybody else. I learned a lot from that, that dude, <clears throat> but he was showing his sticks online, his, uh, his THGA sticks, never showed his process, never showed how he made them, did any of that nature. But I took it upon myself to kind of figure it out. And I actually did it on accident my very first time. Um, but going back to the definition of it, you take that rosin and you put it back in the press wrapped in a, a finer micron than you originally pressed it at. So if you pressed at 25, you use a 15 micron, or if you pressed at 45 U or whatever, you'd use a 25 or a 15. Typically I like to use five to 15 micron mesh. I'll wrap it like a, like a Christmas present. I'll put it in there in the parchment in the press and I bring my press down to about Initially, I was doing 90 to 100 degrees. Now I'm up to about 100 to 100 or 120, 130 degrees starting off. And what you're doing is you're physically liquefying the terpene fraction, the high terpene fraction, and solidifying the THCA. The THCA is the acid form, so that will crystallize at a certain temperature. And the, the terpene fraction will liquefy into a, a translucent, somewhat translucent liquid, depending on, excuse me, the initial color of your rosin. And, uh, yeah, it's just you sit it on the press. Like initially, this was a six to eight hour uh, job for even 20 grams just because I didn't know what I was doing. I would sit at the press for just staring at it, waiting for something to happen. But you'll have the you have the terpene fraction start to liquefy and separate. And as that happens, you slowly bump up your temperature and your pressure to continue to push and separate the, the liquefied portion from the solid portion. And once you're done with that and you've refined it and you've done your cleanup process and whatnot, now you're left with your high terpene fraction and your high cannabinoid fraction, which is your THCA. Um, the THCA initially looks like a white chalk, like a sheetrock almost, if you do it right, if you pull it off. Um, doesn't look like, a, it looks like a very highly illegal substance. Let's put it that way. And once again, Siri's listening. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely it was when i when it first happened to me or when i first did it i actually did a second press on one of my my bags i pulled it out and it had this like white chalky residue on the outside of the bag i was like what the hell is that and i had talked to this guy who uh, was from elysian research who made who had the first prototype and uh and i think they patented it the drip tech press and he he was a uh, he was probably one of the first scientists, cannabis scientists that I got introduced to. So I started to ask him a shit ton of questions about boiling points and melting points and things of that nature, because I wasn't into science at all as a kid, but now I'm just absolutely like, like, I wish I would have paid attention more in school because extracts does that to you. Dude, it's like, <laughs> I, I love the science behind this shit. It's, it made it, I nerd out on it. I wish I knew more as far as the language was concerned. So. If anybody in the chats, don't freak out if I get something wrong. I'm still in the process of understanding all this shit, but you know, it's a, uh, it was a cool reaction that happened. Yeah. See, that's why I like people like you. <laughs> I need people like you in my life, but hopefully I'm getting this right. You know, that, that, that essentially you're left with all your, your THCA and anything of that nature, your acid forms left behind and you're high, you're left with all your, essentially your terps and flavor, your color uh, as, as your, as your byproduct. And it's not necessarily a byproduct. It can be if the rosin that you had starting with is, is, wasn't viable, was maybe a food grade, I guess you could say. Um, but most often 
you would reintroduce that that uh, high terpene fraction back into the THCA after you've gone further with refining your THCA. So now you have a dry, a dry sheetrock looking patty. And what you would do with that is you'd either break it up into little chunks or use a mortar pedestal and grind it down to a powder or put it back in your, uh, your rosin press at a super high temperature, like around 300 and then press it and melt it. And what would happen is it would go from that solid back to a liquid, liquefy into a clear liquid and then go back to a solid and harden into what we call diamonds, which in reality, they're not even close to diamonds. They're a crystalline structure, but I'm not going to call my product crystal because that name's already taken. So <laughs> it's like, like the sugar sticks. Yeah. It's like rock candy. Yeah. But like we're, we're using these colloquialisms to like differentiate, even though they're not right. Like the same, like the live connotation, right? It's not really an accurate connotation, but that's what the market says and it's what yeah. it's familiar with. So we use it. Yeah. And same with this and this is what it is. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. So like my <laughs> stuff, I call my stuff diamond oil. I mean, it's just, it's, there's a phrase that kind of stuck. Um, and, I hope that's not a name that I really truly like, but it's there's not much else I can use aside from THCA, uh, mechanically separated THCA. And, but then if by saying that, people get confused and then don't understand what I'm trying to like either explain or show them. But yeah, we're, once you we're take starting to see a bit of a resurgence, it, it, from my opinion and my point of view, and definitely uh, here in Canada as well as I'm seeing it in in the in the U.S. where. Um, this diamonds and sauces is kind of becoming popular again. Starting to see photos on on Instagram. Do you attribute that to any specific thing, or, or you know, as somebody who's been on the in the forefront of this for a while, what what do you what do you attribute that to? Uh, repeat the first part of that question again. I just see the the diamonds and sauce, like the offering of the the mechanically separated diamonds mixed with some type of rosin or turp sauce uh, on the salt on the side becoming popular something that we're seeing um rosin techs uh doing one i've seen uh i think west coast cure guys are working on some stuff up here i know van gyptians uh just released some stuff with high fidelity um are you seeing that from from your point of view where that mechanically separated thca and and, and sauce is becoming popular or, or, or more, more popular or is that not something? Yeah. Cool? I mean, what, once more and more people start to grasp the idea of it and how, um, how you can further refine your rosin and also turn it into a yet again, another product made from the same product. That's the cool thing about our industry and what we do, especially with rosin. Like right now I have this banana kush and I have it in four different consistencies. I have fresh press, cold cure, uh, jam and the, the diamond oil. Like that's the one thing that I like about this is you can, I mean, once you get to the, the mechanical separation diamond oil part of it, you're probably pretty much at that. You can't really refine it any more than that. Yeah. Uh, you can't really go beyond that until you start mixing them back together to make yet another consistency like blue river, for example, and their, and his flan, uh, the flan from my understanding is just, uh, is, a uh, is a high terpene fraction mixed with, uh, a powdered up THCA. And then also I think maybe a cold cure on top of that it could be wrong though. But just another example is just is the total breakdown and separation and then reintroduction in a, on a different scale. I think that's starting to happen a lot more. I mean, there's simple stuff too, like Cannabis Chris, real Cannabis Chris from my area. He's doing the thumbprints where you got the cold cure and then the rosin, cold cure on the outside, rosin on the center, or the jam rosin on the center. It's, uh, I made jokes about it before and 
about the thing that I do, especially with the, the THCA separation as being a novelty. And initially it kind of was a play. I mean, it's a play on words in a sense, but it's just so hard. It takes a lot to make a little when it comes to the mechanical separation. A lot of people don't understand the value in that or what the purpose is. To me, it was science first and foremost. It was a cool reaction that was happening, but two, it gave me the opportunity to continue to use maybe some mids rosin that I didn't have or that I had that wasn't viable for the shelves. Um, for example, what uh, what Seventeen Doctor was saying was the fact that like you could take a mechanically separated rosin take the THCA that you've stripped all the color and terpenes of and have that viable diamond structure, crystal structure, sit that aside and just keep stacking on that and also have the terpene fraction that might not be viable, that might smell like hay or or wet grass or just bad in general. Push that aside and get rid of it. Unfortunately, now you've lost probably half of your product because you've had to do that, but now you've at least turned the other half into a viable product. And then when you do come across other terpene fractions that are viable, now you can play with those, like we were talking about blending rosins before, or you can take one and mix it with the diamonds because ideally your your diamond structures shouldn't have no flavor or taste. I mean, THCA does have a distinct taste to it, but it, it's in and of itself. More often than not, if you dial in and get it right, those crystals shouldn't taste like the rosin or the flower if you just add the diamonds by themselves. You just got to know your boiling points, right? If you take it up high enough that it's sub decarved. Mm -hmm. but high enough to keep it in it's like nice thca state yeah you can make it a nice pure thca but yeah i think um, you're never going to get there yeah I, I melt my thca my raw thca the the chalky stuff at around 300 degrees for less than five minutes so there definitely is some decarb going on we know that for sure um and it also changes the high i mean the, the thca high is is all encompassing like body like more so than a quote-unquote indica for me it's cerebral and body high um especially when you dab, dab a diamond just by itself uh the one that's the one thing i actually do not like to do because i don't know if you've ever smoked anybody who smoked pure thca you get the film on your lips and like i, I hate that it freaks me I out talked about that last night <laughs> it freaked me out initially i was like what the hell seriously what i never knew what that was <laughs> until i was listening to you talk about that before and i was like mother Fuck, that's what it is. Like when we used to hit diamonds and sauce, like we joke diamonds and sauce, and it was like that's what that's what made me realize it. I do I dab some BHO diamonds for my buddy, and that happened. I was like, oh, is this what BHO is gonna be like? I'm good. I, I don't like that thing. And then I tried some THCA diamonds, and it did the same thing. It was like, bing, oh shit, that's THCA. Like it reminds uh, me of the coating that you get on your lips of resin when you hit a really big bong hit. Yep, and it's like that. That's like the smoke resin, though. But like, yeah, and I was like, oh, my God, I need to like brush my teeth or peel it off or something. Yeah. The one thing that I haven't done yet is got any of my, my uh, THCA separation lab tested. I'm very curious to see how much it's concentrated in regards to that, because if we we talk about like a live rosin that or even a dried hash rosin that might be in like the 60, 70 percent THCA uh, percentile. I can only imagine that if you dial in your, your THCA properly and you get it cleaned up and refined as best as you can, it's got to be in the high 80s, low 90s. I don't think that us as, as rosin producers can truly get 100% THCA through mechanical separation. I don't think it'll ever happen. Centrifuge is, would be maybe the only way. 
Mm. But you have to do that. Very high. That's what, uh, that's what centrifuge and uh, that's what, uh, Blue River's using, you know? Yeah. Blue River uses a centrifuge allegedly. Yeah. Now, have you ever, what are your thoughts on potentially making CBD crystals? I've tried to experiment with it. I feel like the, the, the CBD, CBDA acid structure is different than THCA acid structure in a sense that it doesn't actually bind and stay solidified as good as the THCAA or THCA. And I've only, I've only, go ahead. Needs a certain concentration to actually crystallize. So like, that's, that's the thing about like doing that is you need, yeah, it's kind of reverse of the way that we would go at THCA, unfortunately. So that's what I, that's what I figured out by actual testing. Yeah. I actually, I tried to to press some, some CBD rosin that I made that I buttered up and it just kind of all pressed through the screens as like a, a creamy, super creamy, uh, not watery, but super creamy, uh, byproduct or end product. It really didn't, didn't have any luck with CBDA. I know it's possible, but just like the, the, how the, with the means and ways that we have is probably not going to work. That would be something that would be ideally ran through some type of solvent extraction. I would imagine. Well, Nick, you shared a really interesting piece of tech on the Hishishin that I'd love for you to touch on again, um, with regards to the coffee filters. Um, for your your final steps in in the separation process, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, just go ahead and uh, here put up my Venmo real quick, and I'll have you guys <laughs> shoot. <my phone>. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's um, it's out on the public. I think it. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, a lot of my shit that I've talked about recently is pretty much as is is a wrap. Um, as far as the, the coffee filter tech, it just made sense. So. Like say for example, I have I have this as my my THCA patty. It's still wrapped with the parchment or not the parchment, but it's still wrapped with the micron mesh. I haven't taken it out. It's still as is, and I've pretty much extracted majority of the bulk of my uh, terpene fraction. Whatever's left over is residual. I probably hit the temp- higher temperature that I originally than I originally pressed at. So if I pressed at 180 when I'm separating the THCA or separating the the terpene fraction, I won't go over that temperature for the bulk of my, uh, chirping fraction. Cause I don't want to degrade it any more than it already is. Cause it's getting introduced to heat again, you know, for a second time, possibly a third. So once I hit that point, I take it out and I keep it wrapped in the mesh, but I also wrap it with uh, unfiltered or, uh, unbleached coffee filters. I mean, you could use uh, paper towels, anything that's a, uh, uh, dry and can be at, be used as a wicking agent. Um, I'll wrap, double wrap it first. I'll put it in the press and I'll bump the temp up to somewhere between 180 to 200 degrees. And I'll press it for about five minutes, five to 10 minutes, uh, intervals until you, you'll take the, the patty out and you'll unwrap the, not the mesh, but the coffee filter. And the first couple of rounds will be, the coffee filters will look really wet. Like they look like they just got dipped in water or oil or whatever. So the the further the progression, the further you go with those, with those, uh, steps, with those intervals, the less wet those coffee filters will be for obvious reasons, because it's wicking more and more of that, li- that liquid terpene, terpene profile out. So I just so do that. I'll like rinse and repeat. With, What's like that? The hottest, the hottest fraction, like hottest boiling point terpenes. That's mm-hmm. probably what it does. Or like the terpenes, like sterols, whatever other residual. 
Yeah, you're getting almost okay. getting to the point to where you're starting to, that's very uh, to a certain extent, liquefy the THA as well at that yep. temperature, at least at 200. You're just on that cusp. So that's why I kind of keep my intervals for about five, 10 minutes initially, then go down to five minutes and just keep going until the Super filter smart. comes out pretty much completely dry. Um, and I'll even go less than that too. It's just a, that kind of became my, my procedure for the cleanup process. And that's the cleanup phase of the THCA. That's to get it as bright white as you can. Other people have figured out how to do it uh, in different manners. I know like Mendo Budsmith, uh, Covert Extracts, um, maybe Simply Adam. Or no, I don't think Simply Adam, but um, who was the Simpson. guy? Simpson Solvus. Simpson, yeah, Simpson Solvus. Yeah, I think they use their press. And by using their press, they'll put their hash, or not their hash, but their THCA in a pouch under parchment in the press at a high temperature. And the idea behind that is that the the mesh the, the super fine mesh will actually keep back any and all of the color and it'll produce like a white foam. The THCA will look like a white foam. Um, and that's about the cleanest rosin that our cleanest THCA I've seen besides the way that I do it. Um, the other downside to the way that I do it though, is I actually melt my THCA once it's done and completely cleaned up on like a hot plate, um, exposed. So it's kind of melts into a puddle. And since I'm doing it at such a high temperature to melt it in a timely manner, less than five minutes, ideally, any color that is residual in there kind of presents itself and be can become kind of darker because it is essentially decarbing and, and breaking down. Um, but if you're, if you get the process, the cleanup process comes locked in, you really shouldn't have a problem with too much color. That's cool, man. That's a, those are both bars, man. That, that's awesome yeah i mean the oh. color will also uh, be determined too on the rosin that you're putting into the process like if you have a darker rosin obviously it's going to be a lot harder to to wick that color away from the thca than if you had like a super blonde rosin that's like pretty much has no color going into it already so initially people were would wonder when i did lives and what i was like why is your why is your terpene fraction so dark it's like well it's because it was a darker rosin it's not it's like it's not necessarily degrading it how people would assume or think it is it's just that's how the the initial starting product was. So, I think are obviously, you know, RJ with the guys in Michigan are they are they reintroducing a terpene for those two crystals? Is that what they're? Okay, so like I don't know the chemistry behind that. No. So like, okay. yeah, it's it's speculation. Speculation. It's a terpene being co-crystallized in a lattice structure while they're doing that and due to the ph and the type of terpene that it is it's refracting blue light and he's dialed it in now with purple and pink i think the pink is just washed out purple i again speculating because i don't have the chemistry chops i do sit beside a dude who i think he's like either a masters or a phd chemist and he is insanely intelligent and that guy uh had some some ideas but we haven't we haven't got it yet but oh, it's some real, real deal real deal organic chemistry another day another another episode but nick that's it's interesting oh man it's got the blue crystal how he does that is crazy um i wanted to ask you 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 touched a little bit about you know your your feelings and experiences with machine washing and then moving over to the paddle um as a guy with a big mechanical background do you feel as though there's a ceiling on machine-assisted commercialized 
all of this equipment when, when compared to a paddle or, or do you feel as though that's something that can be either overcome or you've already achieved it with the, with the icons and the ice extracts? I think they're almost there. I mean, um, I talked to, uh, Ben from Hashatron and, uh, Rosin tech. Um, he, I think he's like part owner and CEO and some of those companies as well. Um, but I talked to him about the Hashatron machine a while back when they first started getting their, their things set up. And I saw their, uh, their, their lab that goes on the back of a truck in a, I guess it's, what is it? Um, container, like a shipping yeah. container. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I asked him about that one. It's like, what's up with that dude? Let me get some information. He's like, honestly, I wouldn't even sell this to you. I was like, well, why is that? He's like, I'm just, we're just the technology or our stuff hasn't pat or like hasn't met or superseded hand washing, uh, craft yet. He's like, pretty much this is for commercial, you know, bulk stuff. Um, not quality, super high grade level hash, but since then they've improved tremendously tenfold. And I think they are there now. I think the technology is at, is at the cusp, to be honest with you. I think there will always be something to be said about a hand, hand washing. It could also go totally wrong too. If you have the person that is hand washing, doesn't understand what they're doing and they're just fucking going to town. Um, you can have repercussions in that regard, but. With the technology that, that ice extracts is doing and low temp with their Osprey, um, everybody that has been putting out these machines, is just, is they're, they're leveling up and one up in each other every, every few months with the, with the, um, the speeds that they can control it at the RPMs that you can control it out the, the pure pressures access, the way that that thing functions with a paddle that goes kind of has a paddle that comes down and goes around instead of having something that spins from the bottom. Um, I know there's a, there's new technology being talked about in regards to having no paddle or, or no, no agitator and just using water propulsion, uh, to actually spin the material around versus having something mechanical or physical agitating. So I think we're almost there within the next five to 10 years that it, it'll it'll be a wrap for a, a lot of, uh, of this industry is when it comes to how much labor is being pulled and st pulled back from these one man operating machines and, uh, labs. Machine. I couldn't agree. Yeah. I mean, I need what you're saying, uh, but there's always going to be a place for hand washing. I mean, when you get down to the craft, like the, the craft size, a uh, small batch, well, however you want to define small batch or nano batch or whatnot. And there's always going to be something to be said for the hand washing and, uh, and it's, and it's the roots of it all as well. Like, I mean, that's what I, I, my Rackham's is an ode to the roots, even though I didn't come from the roots, I'm, I'm giving an ode and shout out to the people who did this shit before me. And this is how they did it. So it just, just it, it only felt right for me to continue in this manner. Who knows if I get my own lab, I'm sure I'll have a, a washing machine in there of some sort. But I'm definitely going to have some type of brutalist system where I'm hand washing as well. You know, Absolutely. maybe I'll compare the two and see which one levels up better than the other. But in the meantime, I'm hand washing for life. So until my back gives out. So kind of touching on the, the, the diamonds that you were talking about and having that little side pump going. You like, we're seeing a lot of hybridization in the cultivation methodology. 
realm of, of cannabis, do you see that same idea of applying to extraction methodology? Like, do you see a, a, a future where the, the two methodologies of, of solvent based and, and solvent less extraction are combined and put together for a client, uh, a, an offering to the consuming public? I've been hearing, you know, speculation of that happening sooner than later. Um, I think people have even tried it. I just don't know exactly who I just, I've had, I've heard discussions pop up here and there in regards to literally mixing the two and seeing what happens, you know, as far as, um, in the processing side of the things, um, the lab that I worked at previously wanted to, wanted me to wash hash and then run the, run the plant matter through a Delta separation cup to spin it. Uh, dry with no ethanol to get the water out of it and then put it in a different cup that had ran ethanol through it to extract the remaining remaining amount of trichomes and it's like well that just seems like a lot of fucking work that, that i mean i also don't know how water affects uh butane or solvent extraction as far as like running fresh frozen um rj i don't know maybe you can touch on that a little bit if that's even possible but there, I've always wondered. There's, there's a few things that we can do to like maybe collab in certain ways. I have a couple ideas. Um, I was just trying to find an equation for um, something we can talk about in the back channel that we can start melding some of the thought processes that we have in, in the solvent realm with what's going on in solventless to improve and optimize some of the processes that are already going on. Because you guys are in the rudimentary stages where we were with Diamond Growth five years ago. Yeah, You know what I mean? And now we understand how to make diamonds and now guys got these crazy diamond structures and things are, and I'm sure honestly, that is totally doable in solventless. And, uh, I think we can hack the tech and I just, honestly, it just came to me during this, during that conversation. So appreciate your brother for the inspiration and we can definitely, uh, get this going. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's been a lot of talk about it. I just don't like, I guess the one thing that I have, a have, uh, a problem seen moving forward is how the the end user will receive it, especially when an end user has been using solventless for so long and they have their reasons for, even if they were a BHO user in the past and now they've just strictly put it off and only fuck with solventless. It's like, those might be the ones that be like, well, you just ruined perfectly good product. Why am I going to fucking buy that shit? There's once again, it's going to have to be an education done. Damn, I need to write that down. I'll you want to explain that real quick? It looks like nope. uh, <laughs> it looks like Egyptian art hieroglyphs. Yeah, he, he doesn't have his Venmo up. He's got to put his Venmo up. You know? <laughs> that, that's a huge. Yeah, I'm not drawing. I'll take all the Venmos for that. Um, oh man, that's cool. So, Nick, what what are your thoughts on like the the future of dabbing and, and concentrate consumption in general? Do you do you think it's going to remain a bit of a, a niche? Like, and I'm not talking about consuming between bait pens and, and things like that, but I'm talking about torches or nails. Do you think that that's going to grow in acceptance or do you think that that's going to remain a, a bit of a niche on a method of consumption and, and culture? Shit, one of my old lab bosses uh, just did his first dab out of a Puffco, uh, first time ever, and he's in his late 60s. And he, uh, my, my old apprentice went, went over there to check out some of the material that we processed for them. And, uh, yeah, I got to sit down with him and he was blown away. So 
I think uh, that obviously the technology will continue to evolve and grow into who the fuck knows what else. I mean, I feel like the Puffco peak is about like the 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 peak of where we can go with uh, traveling, dabbing, and things of that nature. But not there. Yet. Um, we're not we're not there yet. Yeah, I mean, you got the what is it? The Index, if I'm pronouncing that right, the thing that looks like a like a, it comes in a fucking flight case type deal. Like that's. That's next has, level that's right there. That's just the best thing I've ever had in my entire life. I can only imagine. See, look at that shit, dude. Here, let me put my address down. You can send that over. Fucking end. <laughs> I mean, price needs to come down a little bit. I mean, it's worth it, but like for more people to get it, it needs to come down. Yeah, I mean, you got to have, you got to understand that that's not really mobile though at the same time. It is, but it isn't, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I honestly think, I mean, you might disagree with me, RJ, that I've had these conversations recently, but the conclusion that we came to is that right now, as it sits, rosin and solventless products are still kind of the minority on shelves uh, along dispensaries and LPs and things of that nature. Absolutely. I honestly, I honestly believe within the next five we, years that that solventless will be more than fifty percent of the shelf space uh, and dispensaries. I honestly I do. I agree, and I think it's been if you if you like looked at the representation of the like the what was it, the Prop 215 market in California, and then the pre-legalization market here, the concentrates were a way bigger source. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because, like, your favorite kind of hood dude could just get some COAs and send it to the dispensary. Yeah. And that's kind of... I mean, that's what, what I was doing. I was, like, when I first started right. 215, before 64, I was just able to make my product and then walk right in, just like with my boys with their pounds. And... Like I had Rackham's on the shelves prior to 64. It was fucking awesome. I had my, my stuff in three different dispensaries in Sacramento area. And it was amazing to be able to come on so quick and be able to have my label sit on the shelves. But I think so in the, the next five to 10 years, we're going to probably see more solventless products than, than solvent products and possibly more than flour at, in dispensaries. I, I mean, think that's where we're trending for sure. Um, I think the most forward-thinking people in on either market on both sides of the border are the ones who kind of are most tapped into their supply right so they're the less they're less likely to actually go to the legal market to procure their goods because they can't get the volume they can't get the price or the quality or this you know what i mean the service the deal you know the, the, the personal interaction the, the whatever it is or you know what i mean their favorite people they like to support aren't in the market Yep. I think also so like, the, you're the, the reason it'll grow is the allure of organic and and water versus any other material. I mean, if you look at somebody that's, because I think of it as not any of us that are smoking, non-smokers that are going to smoke and they're going to pick up a concentrate, if they have an option and a solventless is at a similar price than a solvent-based um and it's an easy way to do it, whether an index, mini index sort of thing becomes easier. I think like your organic side of it will make it more successful. Agreed. If they're at the same price, but I'm, I think that it's similar. Really no, because you, you can pay a premium. I think you could pay a 20% premium because if you look at Whole Foods, if you look at everything else, like they sell the same fucking tomatoes, but they sell them for more expensive. Mm -hmm. For sure. But we're able to scale things with solvents that like it's going to be really hard to catch up with and it's exceedingly hard to catch up with so i mean yeah. like i think there will continue to be two distinct kind of markets you know what i mean people like like i dab bho 
I dab melt and rosin interchangeably. I dab everything as long as it's like, it's good. You know what I mean? Like I just, I, I don't, I don't discern. I just virus fire. You know what I mean? Um, I don't, I, but I understand what I'm dabbing. And I think that's where a lot of the, 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 the fear kind of lies is like, you know, there's that's a lot of people not doing it well. I'm gonna, because they don't they don't understand the process. Jump in. I'm gonna play devil's advocate. So I will smoke clean, good BHO over dirty rosin and the <laughs> days. And you can clean and make safe things that you cannot clean and make safe with ice and water. And so I and anybody who knows me knows I I'm the biggest proponent of solving this. Sure. And, and, and I'm the biggest proponent of the <laughs> for solving this. Um, but I think with price point wise, it's going to be really difficult to compete with uh, a priced consumer. Like, not the consumers that are watching this show, not the people. Oh. <laughs> Wait, what does your shirt say? I'm actually getting a little warm, so let me take this off real quick. Yeah, yeah, we got to see this. Let me put my hoodie on real quick. Empty flower rosin rosin club. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Oh, you got one too. Amazing. I got the hoodie. <laughs> hey. <laughs> well, hey, we were brothers. <laughs> that's fucking hot. My, my point is, is that I think that both... I think everybody's right, but I think both market categories are going to grow. Um, the, the, the concentrate consumption is going to grow. Robilus will, will grow in proportion, and they're kind of going to be always brothers that hustle, but the advantage is scale. And not that solventless will not catch up to that, but we're just dialing in quote unquote small scale, like Ospreys and, and, and things like that. Like those are massive scale, like balance. That's large scale. Metaphor. Yeah, wait, Whistler Tech. Whist like Whistler Tech is larger scale than than and, and, and is kind of built to, to scale up a bit larger. So that's the exception to my rule, as there always are mm -hmm. exceptions to all rules. But um but my comment is is that the industry, the the solvent based industry is poised and ready with proven technology to be able to to produce at scale. And really just only now being given the opportunity and the material needed to do so. And so they've got a competitive advantage and, and will have for the forever future as like, you know, my younger brother is never going to be older than me. You know what I mean? So yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I don't kind of just said it right there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, we're all doing the same thing. We're just, we're just, we're, we're it's, and I, it's one thing I say all the time is there's a thousand ways to skin this cat with every aspect of what we do, whether you're solventless or, or not, it's, it's, it's remarkable. That's where, like that's when where I, I think it's interesting though, what you do, cause I feel like you're almost bringing the solvent based people that are into diamonds and sauce. And they're like, yo, I don't really want this like soft fucking waxy shit. Yo, they got diamonds and sauce. Like I smoke all the time. I want diamonds. <laughs> yeah. Yo, but they take things like this into consideration. Like there's things like anti-solvents, right? You add it to a solution and it causes like oh, instant separation. So like, what if you had a, like, you know, a solventless solution that you warmed up to a temperature and prepped properly and added 
of just a micro amount of some anti-solvent, whatever it could be. And then all of a sudden you've got like an instant separation or an instant structure change or something you could otherwise not obtain. That would be a benefit. You know what I mean? Like, is that, is that now like taboo? Is that now something that's not desirable? I think to a certain amount of, uh, of, of the community that that, that would be the case because mm -hmm. people are going to be set in their ways, you know? I've been wondering this question as well. And someone asked it, what are your thoughts on stainless steel mesh screens? I've used them before. Um, is that pressing? I was going to ask, is that what you use when you're doing your taco style or is it a standard one? Um, as far as, uh, the mechanical separation. Yeah. I use, uh, I use the Rosin Evolutions, uh, 15 micron mesh. I don't, I, I used uh, stainless steel mesh back in the day when I was, uh, trying to press flour and then just started pressing hash. Um, the hash I was pressing back then was really inferior and not super high grade, maybe like two, three star at best. So it was kind of pain in the butt to kind of clean those screens and keep, um, keep them clean and keep them, uh, proper. If you know how to use the shit, then they, they should work just fine. I don't have any gripe against them. I just, I guess I haven't more or less, I haven't really used the stainless steel enough to come to a, a final answer on it. I did, I have used them, but just haven't played with it enough. I feel like as well with stainless steel, depending on how that wire is actually cut and how is it curved? Is it triangular? Is it square? You may be severing things. Uh, this person's also asking, what about wash bags? So now I'm thinking about it as a wash bag as well. The same thing you may be severing and, uh, for pressing, it does carry heat. So you may actually be adding additional heat. Um, but I, I would also refer back to simply Adam, as far as what screens you should be using, because he's done a lot of research on, you know, for, for the rosin deck or sorry for the, um, uh, resin dial, resin dial, um, you know, what kind of screen do you put in that? Do you put a stainless steel one where you look under the microscope? It has that. Do you look, do you get a cutout from a bag? And it's, you know, his research on that has been interesting. I think that's why we're all waiting for it to come out and like so excited because it's like he, he's kind of looked into that and actually manufactured something that should be. What I would like people to, uh, what I would, what I would like people to do a little more research on, and I don't know if it's out there yet or not, is like why we're using the microns we're using. Now there's been talk about it. I mean, we can go on like, and there's one of the simple thing is like whale oh, photography. <laughs> yeah, dude is their shit is the best, but like bubble man, for example, he said he did a 73 micron cause that's when he was born. Has did nothing to really? do with that. I did not know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that either. That's, that's the reason he used the, the 73. It was the, the year he was born. Um, now that being said. Like we know, we all, we all agree on the microns. You have a 25, 45, 70 or 73, a 90, the 104 now, the 120, 150s, 160s, 190s, 180s. Like, like I can't imagine the cannabis plant just growing those specific heads. And we both, we also need to understand that when we say a certain micron, like a 90U, it's not just 90U heads. It's 90U all the way up to the, whatever bag you had above that. So if it's, well, it's really you know, 91, one, exactly that even, even that, you know, I, I've used it. I use mine as like, 
because it's the set the size of the bag is 90 right so are the 90s getting dropped into the 70 bag or are they being held back by that 90 you opening so and it is a 90. where i love this is where i love the science of it because i'm dying and i have it's right here it's 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 called nerudo and it's this little tiny microscope you can click on clip onto your phone but it's for like the older style phones so it's got a prism in the back so it actually highlights or it actually like glows all the way around and check this shit out you go into their app and it's got this tiny grid and you can oh, wow. quantify now your pictures oh so fuck. my thought is i go up and i walk up take some pictures of a bunch of these trichromes and in the app i'm literally measuring and I think that's like the best way, like, let's use the technology. We have our phones. There is attachments for creating microscopes and there's ways to quantify. And like, once you zero in that camera within that app, you can now decide exactly. Someone said the head size, like you decide what the size of the head is. Not only that, is it, and that's actually how I've harvested recently. Is it partially, you know, um, clear? Is it fully clear? Is it, you know, fully cloudy? It's, it's amazing. Yeah, the, the, I've, I've been curious, very, very curious about the micron sizes and why we use those specific sizes. Like we, we, a lot of us tend to not keep the 25 micron. Why? Because the physical amount of oil is so much, so much lesser than all the rest. So it's more just like a membrane, a cuticle and no oil or very little for oil. High, for high THC strains, there's typically not much good there. It's all fractured stocks and stuff like that. But for CBD strains, that's where you're going to start getting a lot of your goods. So just... Good, Something good to know. About. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a question that's, that I bring up a lot lately and try to get other makers to answer to see where their heads are at when it comes to, like, why why don't we have a, a 65 micron or 80 micron versus a 90 and a 70, 70 or 73? Like, is there a specific reason for that? Why are all these companies abiding by those, those microns and not experimenting with other microns to see where their hash lies in, uh, in a, you know, more optimal situation? I'm just reading simply Adam's comic because I'll listen. And that picture, the picture in the background, I, I may, I used a macro lens on my phone to take that picture. And that was dry. Those, those are dry. Those are dried heads from the GMO I did, I believe for, it was a four week dry. So it was a two week, two week dry and two week cure. And then I washed them and that's what I got. Wow. I thought that was Seven. live. What was that? That was comic? Ryan, can you pull that back out? Wait. <clears throat> Multiple different kinds of leaves. If you don't choose the right leaf, that's what I was saying. Way you know, I, Adam's really done the research on that and looking at it under the microscope. And that's why I say, like, I, I need to pull out my old phone because the prism's meant for an old phone and that's what the app's for. But, um, like, having that available on the go, I think would be really great. And as you said, Nick, it doesn't really always have to be a 90U because if you walk up to this plant and you're looking at this giant colas and you're taking these pictures and you literally have, you know, a micron range and you're like, yo, that's a, that's a 150 or that's, that's like a 65. And like, you're going through and taking a bunch of pictures and those are all 65s and you're like, oh shit. Okay. I got to adjust it. That can give you a step ahead of, 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 the, of the game too, because then when you're going to wash that material, then you know you don't need to have certain bags or do need to have certain bags. 
that's one of the reasons why I like to, to recommend everybody when I, when I go and teach and talk at, uh, at, uh, classes and whatnot, if you're running material for the first time, run all eight bags, just at least for your first wash, run all eight bags, see where your heads lie. Then that'll show you that if there's nothing in the 90 micron bag, we'll take that bitch out. That's less work for you. If there's nothing in the 120, take that out maybe, or keep it in just to make sure that you don't get any plant contamination below those heads, you know, so on and so forth. But you can always reintroduce that hash together how you see fit after the fact by running all eight bags, at least for your first or second wash. If you're just running specific bags, you can never separate that hash again. So that was one thing that Marcus Bubbleman taught me is it's always uh, smart to at least run all your eight bags a couple of times to see where your heads lay. And then after the fact, if you want to make a full spec, make a full spec. If you want to do a partial mixed micron, then you can do that. Like It's just like mixing the rosin before you mix the wash. You know, you can always put together. You can never take apart unless you're mechanical. I, just, I think of that as like you're doing the work the first time rather than seeing if it comes out as not what you want. Like Yeah, working smarter, not harder. Yeah, put the work in the first time. You're not going to do it every time, but then you know what you're doing. Like, And especially moving blood. forward. Yeah, it's moving forward. If you're working with a specific farmer, if it's not single source, and you're working with that farmer and they're growing the same genetics constantly, well, uh, that then you know by running all eight bags and you know where their heads lie, more than likely their next batch that you get from them is probably going to be around the same lines. So you don't, you don't have to go and jump through all those hoops again. You can just run the bags that you want to run for that specific batch and you're good to go. Yeah, so that, that thing was me texting Jameson. Um, <laughs> I, so yeah, I, I dived that at 470, which is typically a little bit lower than I dived BHO. And it was like still, you know, a little bit more of a, a puddle behind, but it was still very nice. So usually I'm like 500. Of what? What is that? What did you dab? Rosin or milk? No, some BHO that I made. Oh, so you're not torching your lung? Well, I mean, like up to, it depends on the banger, but up to 550 is usually okay. That's then when I lift up my, that's when I lift up my bong is at 550 and then like wait a few seconds. I love how everybody has their own little mannerisms about how, how and when they dab. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Personal thing. So Nick, you, you talked in the, one of your last interviews about working pretty closely with uh, that Steelworks company. Are you still uh, collaborating with them a little bit and doing some work for them? Are you talking about S9 Steelworks? Yeah. Um, I, we didn't really, I mean, the thing about them is uh, the Michigan guys and uh, Covert Extracts, Ghostbuster Farms, S9 Steelworks, shout out to all of them. Um, I mean, I helped, me and Covert Extracts kind of helped each other go back and forth with the mechanical separation. And, uh, I helped him dial in his product. He helped me dial in my stuff. We also went back and forth with the jam tech, um, when, uh, like Rosin Ryan started coming out with all of his, and, um, I can't remember the other guy's name, uh, diet, something diet funk. Um, but I, they kind of came out of nowhere. They came out of left field, uh, after me and Cover were going back and forth, Ghostbuster hit me up and was like, yo, I really want to show my support and thanks for you helping us out over here out in Michigan. Um, hit up S9 Steelworks if you need any stainless steel wash vessels or whatnot, and I'll get you sorted out with that. And, and I hit up, hit them up and they were able to make me one like within a month, I think, and ship it out for a fairly reasonable price. And I was super thankful. I had, these are guys that I've never met. 
I've only talked to them through social media and maybe on the phone. And for them to kind of take, take that and respect it and show their gratitude by helping me out with getting this vessel was a fucking game changer for me. Cause like I said, I was just in garbage cans before that and in washing machines. That's like driving a Toyota Corolla and somebody just fucking handed you a Rolls Royce. I mean, essentially dude, if I'm, I'm still to this day, so grateful for, them, you know, um, but that's kind of like the other side of me working with S9 Steelworks is just trying to get one of my friends uh, named Gabby. She's Miss Celsius on IG. Um, she no longer does the wraps, but she was making wraps for, you know, the machine washers and started to work with S9 Steelworks. It was like, you need better wraps. I got a girl that does wraps for million dollar ethanol extraction machines for a company called True Steel. I mean, she'll be able to make amazing wraps for you if you want to do that. And they worked together and collabed and worked for a while. She recently just had a baby, so she's not really pursuing that path anymore. But um, they they did some great work together and that and that, that made me happy. So I, I think that's pretty much the gist of our relationship. And aside from the fact that I promote his his product as much as I can because it's working well for me. But the community and the vibe, I like that. It's uh, It's refreshing to hear that there was some reciprocation. Jameson and I have talked about this quite a bit. And it's like to hear that you got to work with good people and got good things to come out on, on both ends is just like, yo, the world is still a little bit good. Like, <laughs> I'm so happy to know, like for real, man, like that's great. Like amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's still common courtesy and human dignity in the, on the planet. <laughs> and that's kind of what I search for. I mean, at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, I'm in, I'm in no competition with anybody that's another maker or a rosin producer. I, I don't look to anybody as competition. I look to them as brothers in arms in this community and trying to push a product that is safe and, and, you know, medically beneficial, recreational, but beneficial, however you want to call it. It's just a, it's, it's an overall good product that we can stand behind. Um, and this plant in general, that I, I don't have any type of ill will or negative connotations to anybody. Even some of the brands back in the day, when I first started, that would bag on me when I, when I first started doing the diamonds, people talking shit, like whatever, that's your prerogative. That's fine. I'm still going to keep doing what I'm going to do. And if I get there, I get there. If I don't, so be it. I'm doing what I love. And I'm sorry you're so angry. <laughs> I've kind of heard yeah. that in some of your previous interviews, like not directly, but I'm glad you directly said it. Cause it's like, you know, people ask you, you said before people ask you, why do you do this? Why do you, why do you take it apart? You know, do all this shit to it. And then just to put it back together. And it's just like, it almost seems like a, a kind of condescending question because it's like, Bro, why do you fucking grow grains and then ferment them and throw them into a fucking barrel and then like ferment them a little more and then boil them off and then filter them and then mix them and then boil it <laughs> off again and then mix it again and then store it for 25 years? Yeah. You know, it's like, because I fucking want to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's it's pretty the, fucking cool, man. It's fun. It's it's fucking cool. That's that's usually my main response because it's fucking cool. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I it's I enjoy what I what I'm doing, so I'm not going to stop. I know it's mean, not like something that's a weird thing to like. Act, like, why would you do? It's like, yeah, why would you fuck up yeah. a perfectly good product? Because I what, can. What because ask. you can't. How about that? That's a better. Yeah, I mean, it's it. There's the long version of that answer is, is the fact that like it's it's another way to refine our product and also make something 
valuable that maybe wasn't so much prior to that, depending on the product that you're initially putting in there, product meaning the rosin. But at the end of the day, it's fun to me. People enjoy it. People are, have interest behind it. It's, show, it's showing traction as far as the community, you know, seeing people all over the fucking states um, and also in Canada fucking with it now. I got people in Brazil and Colombia uh, working on the shit now. It, it's, it's amazing and it's beautiful to me because it's, it's still working with this plant. And it's, it's the fact that we're able to refine this, this plant, cannabis plant, all the way down to its molecular you know, cannabinoid structures and shit is just beautiful. And I don't see why anybody would, would knock on that. You know, everybody's going to have their cup of tea and what they think is the best and not the best and this and that. But, you know, some people might love diamonds and some people, I've had people reach me out, reach out to me that say that, that, that my diamond oils help them with their ailments. They stop taking some of their meds because of this shit and, and so on and so forth. That's reason enough for me right there. That's if, if I have only gotten those reactions from my product, then I'm fucking stoked and I know I did well. And I got no reason to stop. 100%. So talking a bit more about your role as an educator, um, you've already done some in-person teaching classes and you've got some coming up with this. Uh, I think it's held by ice water cultivators. Uh, you're one of the individuals that are presenting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, to back up a little bit, we have uh, Oklahoma sesh or Oklahoma class yeah. going on again the 918 uh, experience project, I believe. And, uh, that's held hosted by 918 OG. Um, Jeremy, he's, uh, we're going to be doing that again on April 2nd and 3rd of this, uh, this, uh, this year. And then after that, we have in September, the ice water cultivators, I guess he's calling it a convention, but it's more or less just a big class that's on the 12th or 12th and 13th of September, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean they're they're fun. They're amazing. I love doing the classes. I have been saying this and will continue to say this. I've never thought of myself as a teacher or educator or consultant or anything of that nature. I'm not I only just now recently started to get my um speaking habits locked down. Before I was never a good public speaker, I'm still kind of as even today during this conversation, still trying to process my, like, I know what I want to say up here, but by the time it gets out here, it's usually fucked up. So I've been working on that, but I never thought that I it would come to this where I've had so much, um, positive feedback that people want to learn more from the way that I gain my knowledge. And it's been pretty amazing to see. I've been able to do a lot of these classes with Bird and Pezbro. Um, just did one, I think, the end of last last year with them, or just recently, actually, this month, last month. Um, that was a good one to do. We did it with uh, Mendo Dope Boys, him, uh, Mendo Budsmiths, um, Pezbros, and Bird. They're, they're great. Demos as well as, like, uh, presentations? Is that what you guys yeah, we. We do everything we do was so now slowly, but surely they're starting to talk more about the cultivation side of, uh, of harvest and cultivation for hash, not necessarily specifically flour, but for hash production uh, and talking about the history a little bit of hash, which is still something that I'm kind of a novice on. So that's why we have, for example, Nick T coming out to the uh, Oklahoma 
sesh or the class. He's going to talk about the. Hopefully, we could get him on the show one day. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll definitely put it in his ear as well. But he's going to talk about the the history from like twenty years ago up until currently. Um, I mean, pretty much talking about mainly solventless, not necessarily hashish or like Moroccan style hash or traditional hash, but new school hash from the last from the last two decades. So that's going to be really cool. Then we go from that. We teach. We actually show um, washing, machine washing, hand washing live in the Oklahoma uh, class. Nine one eight OG has um, has the Osprey, so I'll show hand washing and small machine washing, and then he goes over to the Osprey because a lot of our classes are kind of broken up into fractions of like people who are just mom and pops working out of their garage, all the way up to um, suits who paid for the class and sent their employees out from their lab who would possibly have an Osprey or a Icon or, or a Whistler tech machine or something like that. So they're kind that's of, un- uh, that's unreal that you're, you've got access to one of those machines for one of these classes. Cause it's like an at home then grower or maker to then see the difference and be like, fuck, I could be on this scale too. I don't have to be that big. No. I mean, if you can afford it, <laughs> I just mean the quality of like what you can make at home without that. And then yeah, yeah, that's well, that's the reason I like to teach. Stuff, but it's like, look, you can do this. That's one of the reasons why I like to kind of teach the way I teach is I like to show people that that there you can get just as good quality as the next person on, uh, that's coming up from your mud room or your garage if you if you implement s- certain steps and make my SOPs or our SOPs your own SOPs and make it work for you, and you can make quality shit in a fucking ten gallon garbage can if you know what you're doing and you understand the process you know or you could use a the bubble magic bubble now magic washing machines modify them and do it that way or hand washing in a 50 gallon drum it can all be achieved you don't need like the super high-end equipment to get shit done you don't need an osprey even though they are fucking amazing you don't need you know a whistler tech machine or need to have a crazy lab i mean that's the thing too is like we're washing environments people don't realize that you don't need a you don't need a cold room it's ideal and would make your life a whole fucking lot better but you can get by depending on your product and what you're washing if you do these certain steps i guess you could say that's an interesting one so i have a question to that do you because i think i've heard this from i don't know it might have been from you or somebody else that's watching online but do you think if you're fast enough and if you keep your vessel cold enough and your water cold enough that you're washing with and a freezer nearby that you could get by without a cold room? Yes. And have the same product? Yes. Like, yeah. I did it last night. <laughs> I was up until 3 a.m. last night washing our uh, our first outdoor batch of uh, Sunday Driver that was all purposed for fresh frozen. And boy, was that shit gumming up. Coming up like a motherfucker, like on my, on my spatula, I used, <laughs> it was, I was struggling. I had my, I have an AC and I have a cold bot, but my cold bot, my AC is too small for my cold bot. It free, it still freezes over. So I, I am now I'm using the outside air, the temperature up here in the mountains at night can get down to like forties. So I'll have my AC kicked on. I'll have my door cracked open, letting the cold air come in. But last night I was fighting that same situation. I was like, dude, I have this fire ass shit and it's just gumming up to the bag, gumming up to my shit. I need to figure out another way to keep this stuff cooler. I have a water reservoir that's chilled. So 
but I only have so much water in that, ro- that water reservoir that's kind of allocated for my wash, not my rinsing and collecting. I have another line that comes from the bathroom area that, that runs through filters and filtration, but that water is like 55, 55 degrees or so. My chilled water is down to 40, 45. So last night I ended up having to kind of preserve, make my washes smaller so I could use more of my chilled water to rinse my bags and collect my hash than using the other hose, which I normally use to, to do so because it was, it was not melting the hash, but making it more greasier. Um, I also had to keep the door open to let my, to let more colder air come in. So there's things that, that you need to kind of take into consideration when you don't have full access to a legit cold room, like. I can easily get my room down to 50, 55, but that's about it. Like, unless I'm, you know, washing in the winter and I open up all my doors and and windows and now I have, you know, 38 degree, 35 degree weather coming in. So it can be done, but you're going to fight an uphill battle, especially if you're working with quality shit. If you're working with something that's six star or full melt, you know, good luck trying to capture that hash out of a bag when your room's above 55. And I tell people, if you're, if you can't get your room below at least 60, good luck. It's, it's, if you're working with really good product, good luck. If you're working with two star, three star, it's not going to fucking gum up on you. Even fine. You can, I mean, I've washed in my room when it was 70, 75 degrees, which was stupid, but I did it and I, it worked, but I would never wash fresh frozen or something that I know is truly, truly melty in that temperature. That's just, you're asking for a world of hurt. I was struggling last night. I was stressed the fuck out. <laughs> so let me ask you this. As someone who had uh, not a tremendous amount of previous experience going in, into uh, your cannabis career over the last six years, do you feel as though being closer to the plant via your wife and, and her cultivation has made you a better hash maker or... Do you feel as though that point is kind of true and you would have gone on your same journey if, if, you, if you didn't have that hands-on experience? I think I think I would have I, I think that I would have gone through that same journey just because of the the amount of people that I get to talk to with that are makers that also grow and how they understand the plant when it comes to hash production versus yield flower production. Um, the biggest hurdle I've had is working with my wife in regards to that, trying to find the right cultivars that will produce her a proper yield, but at the same time, produce a, a hash production that will also yield quality hash, regardless of the actual physical yield of hash, just quality hash. Um, if I get a two or three percenter and fresh frozen from the wife's garden, I'm still stoked as long as, as long as the, you know, the production or hash production was on point. So. There, there is, there was that learning curve, but I, I also did get to learn a shit ton more by being in front of these plants and understanding what I'm looking for with during the the life cycle of the plant. Before we were looking at the 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 hairs, you know, and then them turning white to orange, the pistils. That was that's typically your your traditional way of telling when the plant's done and you need to crop and you need to harvest it. I got her away from that. And now we kind of use that as a back-end uh, determin- determination, but also we focus on the heads through its through the end of its life cycle. I microscope everything. I dope scope everything and check out the heads when we're in like the last week to two weeks to see that transition from clear to opaque to amber. And I got her to, to be able to 
to harvest, to understand the harvest times at that point too. Like when you're at a, you're growing an eight week strain and you're at the end of that eight weeks or you know, maybe a week prior to that week seven and you're starting to flush, you don't really need to worry about, like, you're not going to worry about gaining any more weight at that point. You're flushing, you're not adding any more nutrients. Um, now it's all about your trichome production. So I, I told her, explained to her that we're going to base our, our harvest time around when the trichomes are producing this certain type of, of color, uh, coming back to us, meaning that opaque or clear. So opaque is a lot, is, is too early or clear is too early. Opaque is about right. And then depending on your personal preference, which to each their own with it, how much amber is, is associated with those, with those uh, opaque heads as well. And that's kind of how we base our harvest times now. And I've found that to be beneficial for my side of, of what we do is with the hash production and the rosin. Now we're still getting that really, that really nice color, but we've allowed it to kind of pop a certain percentage of amber heads to make sure that we get that kind of full entourage cannabinoid effect of, of the head of the oil maturing just slightly in comparison to something that was pulled with like straight clear or clear to opaque. <clears throat> so I learned that by habit, by hands-on and working with her material and her allowing me to work along, alongside her in the garden. So do you guys, is the, are the roles divided in the, with the garden and the watch room or, or is there a lot of cross collaboration between just <laughs> Hopefully she's not listening right now, but she never steps foot in my wash lab ever. And it's not because of me. She just chooses not to. But how often are you in the garden? Um, more often than she's ever down, down in my area. That's for damn sure. I mean, like she just got back from Hawaii. I've had to watch her garden for 10 days. So luckily I only killed one baby out of 150. So that's good. Um, yeah, but I mean, I, I'm, I help her water. I help her, I help her transplant. I help, like I, like I said, I do most of the harvesting I run the, the trim scene and make sure that it's, uh, that the room's at the right temperature and humidity while drying. Um, unless things are getting processed into fresh frozen, which is few and far between. She might give me a, a light here and there to run as fresh frozen if I'm lucky, but, um, more often it's just through dried flour, <clears throat> but there is a, there's a mix on it. I mean, our, like she has helped the other problem with, with running with, with her in, in my laboratory or my lab is the fact that sometimes, especially when I'm dealing with the dry hash, it's just floating around and. Once again, yeah. she's got, she's got asthma problems and whatnot. She said she can't even be down there when I'm washing. It's like, well, everything's wet, nothing's flowing around, but it's the terpenes that are off gassing. Oh, she said sure. she has problems with. And I, I mean, just now we're starting to realize that with like a uh, solventless mind talking about terpenes and how they off gas in the wash and this and that. And now he wears a mask or so like a, um, a respirator when he washes. I've seen other people starting to wear respirators. Wow. I guess it's starting to become a real thing. I haven't noticed it personally myself, but, um, it's interesting nonetheless. Yeah, I notice a lot of guys who watch have weird, you know, lung, lungs are irritated later in life and they're trying to figure out why. And, and it's, uh, it, you know, yeah, where are your respirators? Even in the water, that stuff's in the air. It's a trip. The legal facility that I work at, like, it's mandatory for all material prep. Like, you have to wear a respite, like, both for particulate and the terpenes. Like, it's just, it's too much. It really is. Yeah, I mean, you think the, you figured if it, like we talked about it before, the off-gassing of those said terpenes are are the most volatile monoterpenes that we don't want to really have in our body, anyways. 
So it makes sense that that can have some type of harm even before you go and light up a banger and, and ingest it. It's, it's a trip. The stuff that we're learning slowly but surely is, is, is pretty cool. Like the fact that we're just now learning about THCP, P as in Paul, THCP. That's interesting as fuck. I heard it's more psychoactive than THC or THCA. Yeah, a lot more, but it's like, it's, it's these novel isomers and it's all chemistry based, right? So we're taking essentially the CBD base and we're changing it and isomerizing it into all these different things based on uh, the chemistry is so deep. Like I, I would bastardize it and fail at explaining it properly, but there's just so much behind it. Uh, that like when as chemists get more and more into it, they can actually start chasing these novel isomers a little bit more. And yeah, some of them are crazy. Some of them are super, super, super potent. Uh, and they're being found in like very small concentrations, correct? Right. Super small concentrations in the plant, but they're able to concentrate that and, you know, take on like a CBD isolate base and literally just turn it into anything. Uh, wow. pretty much these it's days. Probably like breaking so, it down the chain and then getting there. Is that? Well, no, like using just chemistry, like adding a chain here using, you know, this kind of catalytic reaction or like this over here using this reaction. And then like, they're just able to restructure the kind of well, I know they want. You know how little I know about that chemistry side of things. And I would like just basic, basic level. But like, here's my concern is that in Canada, the regulatory oversight, as far as bringing new products to market is fully bore by the license holder who's bringing the product to market. And so, right. so with, you know, this exploration into these novel minor cannabinoids that only ever appear in nature in like minuscule amounts. And then we, we are going to concentrate these things and put them in, into pens and stuff. And now I'm all about concentrating things and letting humans in, enjoy things, but you know, cannabis has been concentrated and enjoyed for many years and, 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 you know, proven relatively safe and, and many other things have, but for, for that, a TH, uh, a THCV or a THCP pen to be, be able to just be created and released and, and, and no real study done. Like, does that give you any concern, RJ, as somebody else? No, okay. Like. And like, I, I worry that it would be released on to the market untested. And like, I mean, if a company has an R and D license, they can at least do some in-house testing, you know what I mean? So at least they can get some people experiencing what is going on, which is a start, but yeah, some more clinical tests would be advised, you know what I mean? And appreciated, but like, where, where does that sit with health Canada? Where does that sit? You know what I mean? Like. You probably have to be attached to a university to some degree and, and take that. I, I don't, I don't know like how to approach that side of it, but I mean, yes, like a, a straight THCP pen, probably too much, you know? Yeah. Um, I would imagine. I mean, I, for example, I heard a uh, skunk man, Sam talking about THCP on past church. And he said he did like the, a pinhead size of it and it laid him out like a half gram dab. Yeah for a couple hours like thco thco acetate like all these like kind of different other ones too like where where does this leave us <laughs> you know so it's crazy it's crazy to think that 
you know, this is what's going on presently. We don't understand. I think in five years, we'll have more of an understanding and then things will be more formulation based. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like I got some 65% THC, 5% THCP and like 15% terps or, you know, what? 15% is too much. I think we'll actually be smarter than that by then. I think it'll be in that nice five to 8% range because we'll have some more uh, data that, you know, anything north of eight to 10 is just lung fuckery. Yeah. Corrosive. So my lungs. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think it just needs to be dialed back and like, we just be smarter about how things are formulated and, you know, reconstructed. Like if if that's the, the way we're choosing to do things and we're not having just a you know what I mean? Just a, st- a single representation of what the resin is on that plant. And we're actually able to, to reconstruct and put it back together. Then yeah, it would be, it would be kind of a good thing to be able to maybe add a little here or there. But then again, like I said earlier, then what, where is does that say with the market? Cause the pure, yeah. the purists are going to be like, well, like what good does this do for us? You know what I mean? And then everyone else is going to be like, well, that's cool. And then what, what, what segment of the market that the purists really represent? Kind of like you were talking about earlier, overall sales, you know what I mean? Like I know vape pens in Canada as just a general example are in the double digits and dabs are in single digits. Flower is like 60%. So where does that leave us? You know what I mean? Very true. We're, yeah. We're such, we're such a small market segment, at least in, in the overall sales market that our high level talks about like what the consumer wants is like what we personally want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that a, a lot of consumers, it's convenient. It's like, it's okay. That's neat guys. Put that in a vape pen for me that I can throw in my pocket and I'll, I'll, I'll try it. And if not, I'm not buying a Pupco and I'm not buying a rig and doing all that. And so, you know, I think that it's the slow conversion, a lot of my friends who I went to school and they're having kids now and, and they're finding that, you know, they pop out for a joint on Saturday afternoon and they reek like a joint and they got to go have a shower and change their clothes. And that kind of like dampens their high and the whole point of them pop, popping out for a, a joint. And so dabbing, you know, when introduced to them is, is something that they, you know, jump at because it's something quick, intense and, and you know, the, the odor isn't as big a factor. And so I think that, you know, finding those right methodologies to introduce these extracts will make things more mainstream, but the way you go through extracts is, you know, you start with a vape pen and then all of a sudden you're loving the vape pen, but it's just not doing it for you on Friday and Saturday nights because you're using it all week and it'll get you through a Thursday or Wednesday, but like Friday, you want to get a little fucked up. And so then you get a yo can and you're, you know, you get a little bit of concentrate and you're able to do kind of like the version of a hot knife out of a yo can. And then you start realizing that, you know, maybe you try buddy's dabbing. Like there's a progression that has to be made by a wanting consumer to increase their experience. And what I think we're not understood yet is out of the populace that is going to come into cannabis, where does, uh, their port, the, the vast majority of that group's point of interest stop? Because we all know that those people, inconvenience. Like, we, we all know those people who are like, yo, I know I smoke good weed, man. Like I know good weed and, and they don't know good weed and, and we're nice people and our parents raised us. Right. So we don't tell them that, but it's just, 
they've decided to kind of stop looking at a certain point and go, this is my mountaintop. Whereas a lot of us have continued on and going, no, no, no. If you, if you go over this hill, there, there's many more mountains that you have to climb it. And people are kind of happy with their, whatever their, their 10 out of 10 is. And so I think understanding that and, and trying to meet them there is, is where we're going to find success in the market. But I think a lot of the market too is in, like, where does the market stop? Inconvenience. Like people don't want to have a torch at a rig and have to clean this shit. You know what I mean? Like as things continue to get more convenient, we will get more of the market segment. Right. So like you I reach more of the people who normally wouldn't to do it. We normally wouldn't yeah. fucking give it yeah. time or so day. Like, it's going to be yeah. carts or it's going to be like dive systems with like in the cup, K cup Keurig style thing. I get a little pod and I plug it in. And that gives me my, oh, you know, I'd like the induct. Well, whatever, whatever the system turns out to be, but like, it's going to be something like that style of convenience. I go get my pack of five pods and I come in and I load it into my system and I just do my thing and that's my thing and that's it. And I dispose of the pod and I don't have to clean anything except, you know, a general cleaning of the rig every once in a while. And it's very like, that's the level of convenience they like the, the general masses need to get into this. My personal opinion. Yeah. I think the, the biggest hurdle that we're going to come to see here in the near future is the waste factor of this, of, of what we do, our industry. I mean, we already know we have a, a waste problem when it comes to packaging, let alone like the pods that you, that you speak of, if we end up doing that sort of, sort of trickery or whatnot, but then on top of like that, the vape carts, the vape carts and the battery waste. The cannabis community when here in the United States, as well as in Canada, there's no type of recycling system in place. There's no type of like, um, bring your jars in or bring your batteries in. And so like there I, is in Canada. There is in Canada. Fuck. There is in Canada. There's certain stores that participate in a recycling program where you can take your vape carts in and basically deposit them in, in uh, a little bin. They get taken and broken down and made into like playground equipment or some shit like that. Yeah. I think I know, like, I know we have battery disposable I mean, it makes centers. it plastic and whatever, but it's a base, you know? Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, they're not fucking there's, like, there's, there's just gonna fucking vape carts, bro. I don't fucking know what it is. They're recycled for some shit. No, for real. They're probably getting made into like uh, flip-flops or some shit. It's some good shit, though. I used to look at a store and know about it. I didn't, for some reason, I thought it was playground equipment, but maybe I'm just... Wouldn't be surprised, depending on what, what country you're Honestly, in. Honestly, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the biggest hurdle. That's one of the reasons why, like, with, with, uh, with me, I always was doing glass jars with metal lids. So at least I know I, would, I didn't have any plastic involved with, with my product. And, like, with these things now, the Calyx jars, um, do, after doing a little bit of research and actually talking to their uh, manufacturing team and uh, design team, their, their caps uh, have, actually have a chemical compound in them that microorganisms eat up in landfills before it turns into a microplastic. So you can just chuck these and you, you can have a little bit more peace of mind at the fact that this plastic won't get broken down into a, into a, a, a microplastic. So it's kind of cool, but they don't promote it as such. Nobody really fucking knows until you ask the questions. They say it's sustainable and that's it. It's like, well, what does that mean? I was going to say, everybody knows anything. that the Alex jars are the best, but yeah. So I want, so I wanted to ask you a couple couple more questions, Nick. So so the first thing I wanted to ask you is, is, and I know we touched on it a bit, but 
you feel the envelope has been pushed as far as it can be pushed in innovation on the solvent end, or, or do you feel like there's still room to, to go there and, and where do you see the, the, the room? Well, I think that's a tough one. I mean, now we're talking about vibration separation with hash and that technology coming around um sonic really? vibration sonic? yeah oh yeah that was, that was an amazing idea i mean that dude same dude joe i was talking about that made my first set of plates he had um next to his shop he had another shop not his shop but another company that like polished jewelry and shit and i don't know if you've ever seen how they do that but they have these vibrators with a bunch of like stones or or like uh marbles or whatever in it and it, I, he took me over there one day to check this shit out and this was at least five years ago. And when I was just starting to make hash and I was like trying to figure out how to better collect the hash or whatnot, he was brainstorming with me. I was brainstorming with him. He actually came up with a similar design of what Whistler Tech has now actually released with uh, the way that they uh, separate their hash, their microns. But I saw these vibrating things. It's like, what if I put my hash tray on one of those vibrators to have it vibrate flat and then also to have trays stacked with different microns that you would put your hash on then you that wet hash put that on a vibrator and have that thought about that like four or five years ago and then i see low temp is starting to come out with their vibration system i think um uh hashatron is doing the same thing with the sonic the sonic stuff that stuff i see is a as a a new form of technology coming out in regards to how to refine the product even more I mean, and let, until we can get to that point where we're solventlessly separating different different uh, cannabinoids based off of temperatures and times via the press, that was the one thing I had. I had conversations with uh, the cat from uh, Leasing Research that like the certain cannabinoids actually solidify or liquefy at certain temperatures. If you can find those temperatures, you can do a lot more than just THEA. I was never able to achieve anything like that because I would or nor. I don't have any science. I don't have any labs, cyber or scientific labs I can get testing done at. So, but that type of stuff, if you can do that, and then also going back to what you were talking about with introducing solvents and combining the the two the two sides. Um, I don't know if one takes, like, if that's kind of, like if you're gonna do solventless to then reintroduce it to either a, some type of solvent or a solvent based uh, uh, process. Why do the solventless side in the first place? Like, why not just do it, run it all through? For sure. Or vice versa. You know, I actually even take that back. I actually took a crumble. The last lab that I worked at, the legal lab, I took one of their ethanol extracted crumbles. I took about 10 or 20 grams of that and repressed it on my press and separated THCA from ethanol crumble. It was first time I ever did that. And it actually worked. But like, you could just run that through a different solvent and grow it however you grow with solvents and do it that way. But I actually mechanically separated a solvent product. Um, it worked fine. It worked great. It did. It reacted the same way rosin did, because uh, obviously it's under the same it's under the same circumstances, and you're only focusing on that THCA separation. If your solvent product has a high percentage of THCA that hasn't already crystallized, you should be able to do so in in the same manner as mechanical separation. Nick, we're uh, three to five guys that are, that are doing really good work out in your area. 
other than yourself that you, that you admire? There's quite a bit out here. Um, had this conversation at the very beginning. I kind of feel like the area that I'm in, gold country, is uh, this Emerald Triangle. I'm sure Mendo and uh, Humboldt people will probably disagree, <laughs> but I really do feel it because the the soil out here is different than anywhere else in California, aside from the Emerald Triangle, and also um, just the area, the the temperature for outdoor and greenhouses and things of that nature. But um, in regards to makers out here, there's just as many makers as there are as farmers slowly but surely popping up. Um, of course, you got my boy Ridge Boys. Uh, my apprentice is working with him now, uh, float concentrated and Ridge boys, they teamed up. They've been doing great work. Um, resin ranch just came, just moved out to our area, the grass Valley area. So resin ranch, big up to him. Um, we have real cannabis, Chris, who's crushing those, uh, his, his melt is next level. Some of the, the best shit I've seen. He does the clear tech. Like most of his fresh press is absolutely clear for like little to no bubbles. Um, there's him, there's uh, Gold Country Resin, there's American River Extracts across the river from me. Um, he's been making fire from day one. The list can go on. There's quite a bit, quite a, quite a bit of heavy hitters out here. And one, one person can say competition. The other person like me is, says, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's a uh, gentleman doing the same thing, you know, doing the shit they love. You see a flavor direction? Their flavor profiles trending in certain directions. Um, and leading into the future, you, what, what, where do you see those going? I know it's always going to, it's, it's always going to be a, a ebb and flow as far as what the end user or what the community or what the, the market is dictating as far as what's, what's cool and hip and flavorful and not. Um, Right now, obviously, there's the big thing is fruits, things of that nature. Um, I feel like citruses have kind of fallen off, and there's more of the melons and and fruits and things of that nature and like funky, like dead rotten type stuff. That's my favorite. Something that's like a rotten fruit with like jet fuel on top of it for some reason is just my cup of tea. It's where I I like. As long as it, otherwise gas. Like the one thing I haven't seen a lot of lately out here is is the gas like sour proper sour d's headbands things of that nature does like gmo is the closest you can get to something funky yeah um i i think it's gonna go up and down i mean i'm not sure what's gonna happen i'm seeing a lot of like the the rainbow belts and things of that nature coming around our area california the, the z flavors are still really prominent especially getting crossed with a lot of uh, a lot of other flavors as far as cultivars are concerned um but where it goes, I hope it goes back to gas. That's all I can really say. I'm trying to hunt a, a sour D that'll produce a proper hash and rosin aside, aside from the flower right now. It's becoming tough. Like I miss it. And that's all my, my wife grew for about 10 years was a proper sour D. We never touched on, you know, the name Rackham's. And, and mm -hmm. can, you, can you share with the people where that came from and what the origin of that is? One second. <laughs> That'll be this guy. <laughs> this guy's Rackham. Listen to him snort. Hey, did you hear? 
<laughs> That's my dude. Um, he is my son. I hate to hold him because he sheds, but um, but yeah, his uh, his name's Captain Rackhams. So, initially, when I first started making hash and rosin, I had to come come to a conclusion and figure out what I wanted to do. Because remember, I talked about that change in career path. I stopped doing automotive. The one thing that I told my wife was if I couldn't pursue this in the same way as financially as I did for um, the automotive, I would continue doing the automotive. I, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give it up. I had to be able to do one or the other. So I uh, spent about a year kind of perfecting my craft and whatnot and starting to make a name for me slowly but surely. And at a certain point, I started to make an income that was that was at either matched or succeed or, you know, succeeded the automotive. And I, I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm good. I can continue doing this. I'm getting on the shelves. This is awesome. I'm, I'm actually in dispensaries. I'm starting to, to work with bigger and better people. So I gave up the automotive. And at that point, initially I needed to figure out, uh, a name and talking to a lawyer friend of mine that works in the cannabis industry, he had mentioned, you know, don't use anything specific like like blah 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 concentrates or blah 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 extracts because that's just too too typical and it doesn't serve well when you try to actually make a brand of business, especially in the United States because banks don't like working with cannabis companies. So he's like, just make it something that's like, what's your dog's name? And I was like, Rackham's. And he's like, there you go. <laughs> Literally that that simple. He's like, it's. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't. It doesn't tie with anything. You know, Rackham's technically is a is a is a 14th century pirate, as well. Oh, um, I don't know if you watched the TV show Black Sails, but there's a there's a depiction of Captain Rackham's um, in that TV show. Spells his name slightly different, but he was one of the very first uh, captains pirates uh, back then to allow females on his uh, pirate ship as pirates. And not just like whores, for lack of better words, you know, the, his wife was a pirate on his, on his uh, ship and he had another female there on, as well. So there's a little history to it in that aspect. He was a sailor and you can see the background of, of my uh, logo is kind of nautical, but that just made it easy. My dog was named Captain Rackhams and we named the company Rackhams. And if you ever hear me say anything that in regards to captain, that's what we call him. We don't call him Rackhams, we call him captain, but. Like as far as our flour or our rosin, sometimes you'll see like captain's cake. Yeah. That's because it's, it was just a play on words with, you know, my dog and the flour. That's and cool. cap captain's cake was just ice cream cake. Number five, we changed the name on cause we can, cause it was our fucking flour. So <laughs> what, uh, what do you name your boat? The boat's name is Griffin and it's the original name that was given to it by its last owner. We're not going to change it. We like that one. We actually renamed our little boat, the 23 foot boat. We named that to Rackham's mm -hmm. that still to this day has a big ass Rackham's logo on it. But, um, yeah, the, originally it was, it was Captain Barbosa, but we changed that before I actually started doing the rosin and hash and I didn't, I wasn't going to call it Barbosa's, which I probably could, but it'd be kind of probably harder to, uh, to build intellectual property or, or anything of that nature with Barbosa. Might be. Nick, last question we always like to ask is, is, you know, what advice do you have for people who are looking to get in the industry in California with 
is is this and and I guess you know not not as much getting in the industry in general, but hash makers coming up right now. What advice do you have to them? So as far as California, don't uh, maybe think think twice about going legal. <laughs> California has been fucking us so hard since '64. I voted yes on it, but I did it for different reasons. I did me and my wife both voted yes on '64 to help people get out of jail and out of prison for this plant, and that was the the main thing right there. You know, kind of for instance, kind of what her dad situation was. If he was in here or in the States, he would probably would still be alive today. Um, and there's people that are still in prison for longer than he was for way less. And it's bullshit. So that's kind of like why I did that. And I feel I, I would hope that other people would vibe the same way as me in regards to becoming a maker and doing it for the right reasons and not just the paper. I mean, obviously that's a good thing if you can find your niche and build your brand recognition, if you want to do it that way. Uh, but it depends. Are you just doing this just to make your own medicine? Are you doing this to make your medicine to share with your homies or maybe a little bit more than that? Like we have uh, myself Rackham's and the brands that I mentioned earlier. Um, or are you trying to get into a professional setting where you're in a lab and a legal space and you own the license or whatever? I mean, patience is going to be key in this in this whole venture, regardless of what we're doing whether it comes to acquiring the strains, the genetics that you need to washing that stuff, to, to turning it into rosin, and then to also moving that product if you're on a bigger scale than just uh, just making medicine for yourself. There's like, I, I, I won't front, the traditional market thrives out here. It really does. Um, and I'm a part of it and I'm, and I'm proud to be. I, if I had the means and the ways, I would do, I want to pay my taxes, let's put it that way. I want to do this the right way above the books. For the right reasons as well but california is fucking struggling and now they're talking about changing the misdemeanor to a felony back to a felony if you get caught with shit it's it's outrageous that's five steps back so in regards to people wanting to become makers there's other states that are coming on that were like california 10 15 years ago um if you're if if you got the means and the ways to move to those states i'd recommend it as much as i love my state and where i'm from they ain't making it easy, you know? Um, and it comes to actual production of hash, have patience and know what you're and just pay attention to what you're doing. Um, one of the biggest hurdles I see is how, is people want to know how quick they can get this shit done. Like, how quick can I get this done? How quick can I just turn it over and make another batch? And like, sometimes it shouldn't be about that. It should just be about you and the plant and how you're working together, whether you're using a machine or hand washing and also give every avenue a shot. You know, just don't take one way or one road about doing this and have that be your end all, be all end all, because some part of that road might be fucked up for you. I know that's why I like to tell people to take what I would say with a grain of salt and just kind of understand the concepts I'm trying to provide and then break those down to what best fits your situation and then work upon that. Not everything that I say or do, just like anybody else, is going to work for you, you, or you. You know, some parts might. And that's the, that's one of the first things that, that other than that is don't be afraid to ask questions. I know a lot of people definitely have big egos in this, in this industry. And even like, I'll admit, sometimes I get way too many questions where I'm just like, fuck off. And I don't mean that specifically to anybody in general or like, you know, but sometimes I just uh, need that breather. But uh, at the same time, 
the way that I learned is by asking questions. I learned by watching people's mistakes. Um, and that's kind of what I'm trying to show with other people as well is like learn from my fuck ups and my mistakes and what I did wrong. So you don't do that same shit. Yeah. Um, that just elevate you that much more. But patience is key. I mean, that's how, that's how I gained a lot of my knowledge is, you know, God's older than me, pulling me aside and being like, listen, I fucked up and I just done everything wrong. And this is, this is what I've learned. You go forward and you make your own fuck ups. And when you learn something, you pass it back down. And, and that's kind of how I live my life. So I got nothing but luck for that. That's one of the things that I, I made sure that was clear with a lot of the people, especially the THCA separation. It's like, here's what, here's how I do it. Take that, run with it. If you can f fine tune it or like break it down to like less steps or figure it out. The only thing I ask is you either do one or two things. You come back to me and share that information with me, which I hope you would, and not just run away from it. Like I figured it out better than him and, or share that information with other people and like just as much, just as easily as I shared it with you. Now, obviously there's, there can, there's arguments in that with, with like holding information, trade secrets and things of that nature, um, intellectual property in a sense, but, and also like consulting and charging for this information that at once was able to be, to get, to get obtained for free, you know, by just asking the right questions. I think there's now value in this, uh, in this information that I have been sharing for these last few years. So that's one of the reasons why I'm starting a consulting company. You get burned a few times and, and you know, you, you feel a different type of way about giving information out. I mean, I think everybody in this room has lived that and, uh, I completely understand. And I think, you know, you have to walk that line of being an educator in the community and, and, you know, helping those who came who are coming behind you the same way those who came before you helped you, but, but also like understanding that what you've learned is valuable and not everybody has this knowledge and, and, you know, you need to feed yourself off it. So it, it's a hard, it, when your when your personality are, and, and, uh, livelihood are tied up in a community that you also call, you know, home with your friends and family, it, it, it creates a, a difficult situation where you know, you want to give away everything for free when you have to figure out how to put food on your table. So it, it's, it's, it's tough, especially when you move from legacy margins to, to legal margins. It's, it's a, it's a harsh reality, but, uh, how can, how can people find you that like, uh, you know, do you have any, other than your classes, do you have any, you know, upcoming events or drops that, that people should know about? Um. Well, I mean, as far as uh, drops, I got a lot of single source kind of coming in through the Washington system here in the next week or so. I got a lot piled up. I need to get through. What's that? What cultivars are you doing out? Uh, that Sunday driver that we, were, we we ran outdoor, and then uh, the Menage is up next. Um, I have Grape Louie, uh, Washwater, which is a genetics from uh, Bloom Seed. There was a secret seed pack. No, don't know the, the lineage on them. Allegedly, it's a sour D crossed with sour dub. So that one should be interesting. That one actually smells like a proper sour D. Um, Cushman's is, is coming down the line as well. More of your older stuff. We're still trying to, like like I said, the wife is uh, is not so keen to exotics and things of that nature when it comes to like, because growing some, she wants to grow something that's tried and true and that would produce. I'm so uh, taking, taking the risk on a lot of the newer strains and all the crazy stuff is kind of hard for her, but 
at the same time, being able to do collabs with people who do mess with more of the crazier, exotic, terpier strains um, is always a plus. But yeah, other, other than at Rackham's on IG, um, I will start slowly but surely. Rackham's is going to be uh, be pushed to the side temporarily so I can rebrand um, and start pushing my consulting company. It's IWHP LLC. Um, there's no activity on the page right now. I just started the LLC a couple of weeks ago. So I'm in the process of setting that all up, but hopefully here in the near future, I'll be able to separate Rackham's and introduce it back and re under, under IWHP as my, my DBA and start doing it all the right way that you'll see a lot less, uh, product from me and more just kind of educational and knowledge, knowledge drops, things of that nature, as well as continuing to learn myself um the one thing that i'll say first and foremost is i'm i am no master of this of, of any of these these uh processes or texts or anything like that i'm i'm a student just as much as everybody else uh, to this plant so i'm still learning like today i learned uh, the decent amount from you rj i appreciate that um and I'll, you'll probably be hearing from me for more questions as well as you would be I do the wealth of knowledge. I can, I can guess that. That's getting good. Yeah. That's the one thing I wish I had in my, in my arsenal here. Like I have in my lab, I work by myself constantly. I, I had an apprentice for a while, but that was at the legal lab I was working at. So I'm always down there just asking myself questions that I can't fucking answer, especially when it comes to like scientific stuff. It's like, fuck, I wish I had a science person here that I like a, or, a, you know, chemistry nerd or something like that. It's like that could help me out just for like, random questions too that don't really quite make sense to me at that point in time for like why something's happening that I've never noticed before, you know? Send, send them over. That's my specialty, the, the random, random fact. Jameson and RJ one time were sitting on a call and it was like, what's the difference between a lipid and a fat? And I was like, explain it. And Jameson was like, I'm going to look it up. I was like, what, you don't fucking believe me? Like, no, I don't. <laughs> and then he reads it. He reads the same words that I was saying. It was so funny. <laughs> and it wasn't like, he didn't look it up. He just like was lying back telling it to me. And I'm like, okay, let's see. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so let me ask you this, like going to that, like, so I hear people say lipids and lipids and fats or fats and waxes. Isn't one of those, two of those words, the same meaning? Like, is, aren't lipids waxes? Or fats, waxes. So I've heard fats, lipids, fats, fats and are, waxes. Fats are fats are lipids. Fats are lipids. not all lipids. Well, yeah, lipid lipids are fats. So, but like, so a lipid is found within a within a cell wall, right? Yeah, and, and that's the wax like, membrane. Exactly. Okay. So there's a waxy membrane around it, and so like the actual membrane though is made of phospholipids which is literally the chemical bond, that's what a lipid is. So when you're thinking of a fat, you're thinking of like bacon fat, you're thinking of like whatever. So the fats from those cells, as you're breaking it down, are the lipids and the waxy surface on the cell. Yeah, I've heard people mention like fats and lipids and like I've heard somebody else in passing in a different conversation say that those are the same. So whenever I heard anybody outside of like a podcast or whatever, like out in a session or something, say fats, fats and, and lipids. What they really mean is they're talking about fats and or lipids and waxes, which are the two separate things. Fats and lipids are the same, almost the same thing. Correct? Yeah, it just means if, if it's within the cell or not, right? Like, yeah, yeah. 
Because like you have lipid cells, and they contain fat. Gotcha. It's it's crazy. It's still all crazy. It blows my mind. But that's where it day. comes down to, like as you said, it's like it's not actually a difference in things. It's how you're explaining it, and then the nomenclature. And it's like, does it really matter if you're all speaking the same? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the big the big issues in nomenclature when it comes down to that to live versus dead. You know. So on and so forth. Yeah, so much of your time, bro. Appreciate it. We had a great time. Yeah. We'd love to have you back again. Like this was this was a lot of fun and dope. Yeah, it'd be a uh, scientific questions I'm always here for you. Definitely. Also, my wife's not here yet. She's uh, hasn't got back home, but um if she would, I would introduce her. If she could uh she can speak a little bit more about her dad's journey. If, if anybody's ever I, interested in hearing about it. I would honestly, yeah, I would be here. She's willing to, absolutely. Yeah, she's she's been becoming more and more open about it. We're supposed to do another part two with the hashishin. Hopefully, I don't know if this year or next year, but uh, to have her more of the topic of conversation, her experience with cannabis and her father. I mean, she she grew up with uh, kilos around her baby crib. She, I mean, she her fucking phone was tapped by the DEA, so. Her mom had to teach her how to talk on the phone, shit like that. Like, I tell you, this is a fucking movie. Shit's, and she still gets a little emotional talking about her father, but she starts slowly but surely starting to open up and and start to talk about a lot of the memories she had of him. We, he was an ama- amazing human. We'd love that. What's that? We absolutely love to have you yeah. back. We'd love to have her on and talk to her about, you know, so many things, cultivation. And, you know, if any of you watching um, don't know about the Hashishin, you should go check that out and subscribe and watch all those episodes. We wouldn't be here doing the stuff that we're doing today if it wasn't yeah. for, you know, Shiragam and the content that we put out. And, and so we've got nothing but love. And, and if you find this interesting, you're absolutely going to find that interesting. So make sure you check them out as well. So who else you guys got lined up? Uh, to. Kaya is next week. Uh, I think we're taking a Sunday we're not taking a Sunday off. RJ's host and Brian are going to host a cool Sunday set. Um, I think it might be more carbon focused. I'm going to be at the Regen Conference in Michigan. Um, super stoked to go out and support Josh and those guys and connect with old new friends and see everyone. Um, and yeah, if you're, if you're in the area, you should check that out. We also live stream it. Um, and then after... Kaya, we have, I have Nick at tea. We have Nick at tea in May, right? He's coming in May. Uh, um, just to jump back to earlier. Yeah. Got, yeah. We've got a ton of guests. We've, we've like, we really kind of want to sprinkle it between like big names to small names to Canadian big names to Canadian small names and just kind of give us smattering of, you know, a, a highlight of everybody's, uh, all these different makers from all these different walks of life and, and just continue you know, talking about the craft because, you know, I enjoy listening to stuff like this and the more content like this, the more people we can turn on. And then the more people we turn on, the more friends we have to talk to about this shit because, you know, there was a time, but there's very few of us in these rooms, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Or like, even if there was, it'd be, most people would be reluctant to actually open up. Yeah. Now that the world's changed and it's a lot more accepted. So it's, that's one of the, 
one of the reasons I'm so kind of forward with, uh, with my journey, um, and, and within cannabis, my, my wife was always skeptical about it, especially putting myself on front street with Rackham's on social media. And she, I mean, she didn't come from that school of thinking. Yeah. And it, even though I'm, I'm old school in a sense and different mindset, um, as far as like the way that I act and, and, and held myself, I still know that there's this, um, this new revolution happening within our community and just general society and technology and like promoting yourself or pushing yourourself if you want to become a brand is really it was is really hard but it's also easy in a sense if you play your cards right and do shit the right way you yeah. you can come a long way really quick you know yeah. back in the day that that was either just non-existent because nobody wanted and you didn't want anybody to know the fuck you were you know uh Times have changed. And it's it's a crazy sure. it's crazy to see. Absolutely, very true. Absolutely. I had a quick question about Canada, real quick, in regards just to uh, all the craziness that's going on up there. Is that affecting the the cannabis industry as far as shipping is concerned and things of that nature? As it affected a little bit, a little like, bit more on that, but like on the commercial like side of meeting supplies than actually moving yeah. said cannabis products. I'm on the West coast. So like we had a bunch of highways washed out from floods earlier this year. So like we haven't fully recovered from all that yet. And with all the other stuff going on, it's just making like, yeah, getting supplies and moving logistically things around a little bit harder. But I mean, the, I'm the not trying to get the, all that shit has been way more of a harassment than. Yeah. That's, that's one thing I didn't want to get too political with it, but I, I wanted, wasn't sure how it has affected you guys and, and up there because I mean, it's, it feels like January 6th all over again, but for a different reason, you know, it's, it's like more of a, a violation on personal health and things of that nature in regards to what Trudeau is pushing along. I don't know how you guys feel about the man individually, but. No, not for, I'm, I'm not a fan. I mean, I, I'll go out in public and, and, and say it, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan and I'm not a fan of, you know, being told how we're supposed to live our lives. And it's, it's shaky because it's creating a divisive, uh, situation just in the social fabric of Canada, where we're, Trudeau's making it where you either have to stay silent or pick sides. And once you pick a side, you know, somebody who, who have no you know, might, might not think differently of you, um, because of their personal reasons when, when really we're, you know, I think that what the chargers are fighting for is everybody's right to choose. Um, you know, if, if you want to wear a mask, you, you know, you can wear a mask. So, I mean, it's just, it, it was a mess and, uh, it's not good. And it's, it's not a popular thing to be talking about. And we hope it all gets along. <laughs> Word. Well, oh, I hope to, uh, it's their own choice. Like everybody yeah. should do whatever they want to do, which is absolutely, I, I couldn't agree anymore to do what you want to do. Yeah. Hopefully well, I'll no, be able to make it up to Canada soon enough. Street, so no, that's not okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We'd love to have yeah. Up. yeah. I'm trying to, uh, make my way up to green cedar retreat and kick it with the gas town boys. Too- I want to, yeah. I want to stay there so bad, but we, I was supposed to come up there like two years ago and then COVID hit. So. They're allowing Mer- Americans up there now, though, right? Uh, yep. Yeah, absolutely. If awesome. you come up, I'm on the West Coast, so let me know and try to link up. Definitely. 100%. Awesome. That, that appreciate will be time. planned. Absolutely. Yeah. Appreciate you guys for having me on. Uh, like I said, I've so been following you guys for a minute, uh, and I appreciate what you guys do just as much as Shiragam and anybody else. 
putting on podcasts like this in long format where you can actually break down and uh, talk to people on a real level. It's, uh, it's pretty dope. I mean, it's like I said in the beginning, it's kind of how I learned. So more people that we have, like you guys developing these uh, platforms to learn or hear from different makers that have kind of succeeded to a, to a certain extent in any way, shape or form. It's pretty dope. So keep doing what you guys are doing. The whole industry has been so like open source, right? But with gatekeepers and this, this show is like removing the gatekeepers. You know what I mean? We're just talking as anyone would just have a normal conversation and allowing people to see what's, what's real. So definitely appreciate the kind words and appreciate everyone for tuning in. So thank you guys. Much love guys. <laughs> Thank you.